second mode of time, which is linear, is symbolized by the concept of sunrise to sunset. So on Orkney, you have the sun rising in the east, setting behind those mountains every day. But where it sets behind the mountains, reconcile that oscillating offset of the second mode of energy of time. And so you have effectively a, a non-material mode of time and a material mode of time. Now that goes along with um, some fairly heavy scientific concepts. There's a concept called quantum coherence. Quantum coherence is the uh, one of the biologists that I read compares it to the um, a jazz combo where every player in a jazz combo has ultimate latitude to play whatever they want to play but it has to be in keeping with the theme that the entire combo is playing and so you have two structures that are being integrated in jazz you have that individualized mode of, of musicianship but reconciled with the the group um, dynamic of musicianship. Orkney is a physical representation of that point where the energies meet, the point at which the energies are returned. And the word scarabray in the Faroese language is based on roots, actually if you compare it to each Egyptian word, skaher bari, means the overturned boat, the overturned boat. The idea that these orbs that communicate information back and forth between levels of consciousness are defined as to send to say hello. Uh, let's back up a little bit. Let's go back to that superconductive domain where energy first, materializing energy first emerges. Okay, from the Dogen perspective, what creates superconductivity is the perfect alignment of all the little magnets in the domain. If you align them one way, it's called superconductive. It's where magnetism is dormant and electricity is unresistant. But if you flip all the magnets over, then you create a state called superinsulation where the reverse is true, that magnetism is unresisted and electricity is dormant. That same input of energy causes the magnet to flip. Well, we know that parallel magnetism, when all the poles of the magnets are aligned the same way, pulls together. Anti-parallel magnetism pushes apart. So when this little magnet flips over with the electrical charge in between, now suddenly they're set anti-parallel to the rest of the domain, so they start to get pushed out by anti-parallel magnetism. And as they move, they open up a dimensional space that allows the electrical charge to extend. The Dogen are saying, that's what happened with our sun and the Sirius stars. They say, the two Sirius stars in our sun all emerged together just exactly like that. And that over time, our sun has moved progressively farther and farther and farther away from Sirius stars as a consequence of what is essentially parallel magnetism.
It is homie Romy. I'm here um, in a in a cabin in uh, in the good old hills, chilling, working a catering event, a party. Um, oh, sorry, not a party, a retreat, a healing retreat, yoga and meditation. Uh, it's pretty awesome. Got hooked up with this gig, uh, and I'm here recording. Just interested so we can get this episode out because this talk with Laird Scranton is awesome. <laughs> it's it's hands down great. Um, it's it's an instant classic and it's it's an absolute note taker about the scare of Bray that potential you know lost civilization, um, the definite connection to ancient Egypt. It's wonderful. It's absolutely wonderful. All the things. It's it's really good, my friends. So we're here, um, and I want to, you know, just say thank you guys so much for, uh, you know, great week last week. A lot of good, a lot of good uh, feedback on the Ralph Ellis episode, and uh, got a lot of really amazing people to open uh, open up communication lines um, and more thoughts about the about the ancestry and the ancestral connection between between these cultures so that's really amazing and thank you guys for all the beautiful comments um, you know if if you love this show and you want to you know be more a part of the community uh, or like be able to reach out and uh, you know just just chat about whatever interests you. Make sure to join us on the Telegram group chat. It is a, an awesome uh, social media platform in which we get uh, we get to hang out and it's it's not a base invasive by any means. Telegram is a it's a great platform. I love it um, and. I know I love the Telegram family that we have there, and thank you guys so much for for all the insight you bring and the fun links you guys are dropping, links and videos and stories and songs. You know I'll be sharing my playlist on there because I love to share my music. So, that being said, if you would like to support Dan and I uh, and give us a little give us a little boost, uh, so we can keep the production going and all the fun stuff make sure to check out our merch store where we got water bottles hats hoodies yoga mats and backpacks and a bunch of fun awesome and designs i'm working on a couple new designs right now uh we got the uh i put the sup brahe shirt on there <laughs> recently it's uh and the shirt and the hat it's it's um it's our boy Tycho brahe who is just an awesome astronomer of antiquity, you know, part of the magic circle with John D. and Edward Kelly, very famous, you know, uh, him and Johannes Kepler work together. Uh, but, you know, a nice, fun, and punny t-shirt that says, Sup Abrahe, 
And then you can wear it and tell people about Tycho Brahe. It's a great conversation starter. That's why I thought it would be fun to make that as a design. And so I have um have an artist working on a new Tycho Brahe design. That'll be like the the um the flower of Venus. The elliptical shape of the flower of Venus. If you guys haven't looked up the flower of Venus and know what that is, definitely do that. It's a beautiful image. Uh, it's a beautiful shape that that Venus makes in the sky. And it makes a lot of sense with all of the symbology tied to the planet Venus. So definitely check out the flower of Venus uh, design and, you know, go and check out those, uh, those fun designs we got on the, on, the, uh, on the merch shop. And you can also, of course, join the Patreon for three bucks a month and get a bunch of uh, dope content beautiful podcasts that are not on the regular feed uh, uh hours so many hours i i was gonna say hundreds of hours and i think we are almost there definitely but either way you get you get the point three bucks supports us you get content um that nobody else is getting exclusive goodness keeps the ball going keeps it rolling so, uh, yeah, and, you know, the email is attached also to the show notes, so if you guys want to reach out and just say hello, say what up, you guys want to come on for a news segment, you guys want to share some family history, a story, some folklore, whatever, uh, we'd love to, love to have you on and talk story, all that goodness. Oh, 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 this I have to mention, okay, this Sunday, um, January... Uh, 22nd, we will not be doing a Sunday Slow Burn, our live stream on YouTube, but the following Sunday, the following Sunday, my friends, oh, strap in, we are doing a live role play live stream, meaning anybody who joins the link and wants to get on and play will make a character a you know a uh a lizard bard you know that is part hobbit part lizard named Gary Gary Francis from the second rock within the hollow cavern below Japan or something you know <laughs> create a character you get that part and the people that are viewing get to make up the story as we go, one role at a time. So it's like, it's a live role action, live action role play for the most part, while streaming. Uh, it's going to be great. It's going to be epic. It's going to be hilarious. It's going to be f super fun. So definitely next Sunday, I believe it's the 29th, if I'm not mistaken, Sunday the 29th. Tune into our YouTube channel um, and check out this live stream. It's going to be a lot of fun. And if you haven't been checking out our Sunday Slow Burn live streams, where we have large panels and go deep into specific topics, and we try to keep it on theme. Try not to go off theme too much, but, you know, life, it happens. Conversations are great. So, anyways, uh, that's that. My friends, if you want to have some psychic or clairvoyant work, 
with my friend Tobias Sogard. She is offering a discount to any of the Fire Tribe. Please go and get your psychic hygiene. I can smell your, I can smell your sweet spiritual body odor from here. Take a little shower, some love, um, and to the multiple people who have reached out to her and 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 worked with her. Isn't she a gem? Isn't she a gem? She's just lovely, isn't she? She is lovely. She's wonderful. She's good at what she does. And she just started going back to school to get more training, to become more accredited and more certified on top of all of other her awesome certifications, as well as just being a massively great friend and an important person in existence. So go and check that out at visionswitch.space, and her link will be in the show notes as well. So, uh, the news segment this week um, is going to be, I have a book, I have, I, have a, I have a stack full of poetry books here next to me that is a part of this, uh, the retreat center here in California. By the way, the name of this retreat center is The Toll House, T-O-L-L House. If you guys want to check it out on Google for whatever reason, if you guys live in California, it's a great place to come and, uh, and spend a getaway weekend on a, uh, on a property with no cell phone service. So you can really tune out. They got beautiful yurts. This cabin I'm staying in is epic. I'm sitting underneath a heated blanket with my guitar. Yes. So it's, it's awesome. The stars are great. Anyways, check it out. That's where I'm at. I'm at the Toll House. They got some uh, complimentary poetry books here. Um, and I'm just going to read, we're going to do some bibliomancy um, on this. And we're going to pull a pull a poem from each book. It's going to be awesome. So, strap in. That's the RFTA news. We'll, we'll get that going. And then we'll pop into this amazingly epic conversation with Laird Scranton. Uh, thank you, Fire Tribe. You are sweet, sweet babies. We're going to read these serps from this, this stack of books over here. We got five different little poetry books. Um, and what I did is I, I kind of flicked in there, kind of like when you pull tarot card, you know, um, you, you flip to a page, and when you, when you stop, that's where you read, you know, where it feels good. And so you really got to intuitively try to try to ask the book where to stop. So that's what we're doing right now. We got some some good books and see what we pull out i uh just made sure that it was starting on a new chapter or a new cert that was it that was the only thing i had so they're they're all going to be fresh and um hopefully mean something to each and every one of you amazing uh existers out there one fun thing i wanted to say so this new moon we're, we're, we're passing through a new moon right now and i'm calling it just for just for the sake of uh, this past couple days of really great synchronicities and all of these celestial lining ups of planets and, you know, passing throughs and retrogrades and, and what have yous. 
I'm calling this moon, I'm calling it the regenerative moon. Mainly because I just found out that in Florida, and most likely other places as well, but this, this gentleman was telling me a story about these Floridian crabs, that they will harvest the crab, but they'll throw back into the ocean the claw, or a claw, and from that claw, a crab regenerates okay so the rest of the body grows from with that from that claw and creates a new crab why is that interesting uh well for many <laughs> reasons obviously but one being that crabs are connected to the moon via the archetype of the zodiac sign cancer um, which is ruled by the moon. And this quality of regeneration is ins in, uh, insatiably uh, connected to the moon and her regenerative powers, those regenerative properties. So for the sake of learning about this, this crab conundrum, I, uh, I am calling this moon uh, the regenerative moon a time for regeneration, re resetting, reaffirming, re-establishing, and 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 grabbing the the proverbial bull by those saucy horns and getting strapped up to be to be beautiful fruit to bloom. That's 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 what this moon is to me. So. Wanted to share that with you guys. The first serp we're going to be reading is from a book called Pause, Rest, Be, Stillness Practices for Courage in Times of Change. This chapter is called The Underbelly. We can tuck and hide so much to make ourselves more lovable until we can find the parts of us that need the most light, the most real love, the most nourishment to a dark corner of our being. One day while breathing, meditating, and repeating, I can, I will, I must deeply love and nourish myself, a little voice of wisdom said, self-love is this. My hand was literally at my underbelly, the place that has morphed into discolored, loose, scarred skin since giving birth. The place that already had so many war markings before that. This, I silently ask. Not this. No one loves this. Voice of wisdom. Yes, this. Absolutely this. This is your way to self-love. Self-love is seeing fully with tenderness and compassion. That part of ourselves that we have learned to believe is most unworthy of being seen, unlovable or flawed. It is accepting, touching, feeling, tending to, singing to, gazing completely at the place that others have turned their eyes away from. It is wanting what has been unwanted within us. It is holding our underbelly 
or wherever that place is that we've experienced that no one loves this. It is holding and loving that part of ourselves that is just the beginning. What place within you are you just beginning to love? What place within you do you believe is still untouchable, unlovable, or in need of hiding? How can you reveal more of that place to yourself? That was from Pause, Rest, Be, Stillness Practices for Courage in Times of Change, written by Octavia F. Rahim. Up next, we have a classic, The Essential Rumi, translation by Coleman Barks. And we open up to page 220, 220, and the story is titled The Snake Catcher and the Frozen Snake. Listen to this and hear the mystery inside. A snake catcher went into the mountains to find a snake. He wanted a friendly pet and one that would amaze audiences, but he was looking for a reptile something that has no knowledge of friendship. It was winter. In the deep snow, he saw a frighteningly huge dead snake. He was afraid to touch it, but he did. In fact, he dragged the thing into Baghdad, hoping people would pay to see it. This is how foolish we've become. A human being is a mountain range. Snakes are fascinated by us, yet we sell ourselves to look at a dead snake. We are like beautiful satin used to patch burlap. Come see the dragon I killed and hear the adventures. That's what he announced, and a large crowd came. But the dragon was not dead, just dormant. He set up his show at a crossroads. The ring of gawking people got thicker, everybody on a tiptoe. Men and women, noble and peasant, all packed together, unconscious of their differences. It was like the resurrection. He began to unwind the thick ropes and remove the cloth coverings he wrapped it so well in. Some little movement. The hot Iraqi sun had woken the terrible life. The people nearer started screaming, Panic! Panic! The dragon tore easily and hungry, loose, killing many instantly. The snake catcher stood there, frozen. What have I brought out of the mountains? The snake braced against a post and crushed the man and consumed him. The snake is your animal soul when you bring it into the hot air of your wanting energy, warmed by that and by the prospect of power and wealth, it does massive damage. Leave it in the snow mountains. Don't expect to oppose it with quietness and sweetness and wishing. The nafs don't respond to those 
and they can't be killed. It takes a Moses to deal with such a beast, to lay it back and to make it lie down into the snow. There was no Moses then. Hundreds of thousands died. The next is called Polishing the Mirror. When Abu Bakr met Muhammad, he said, This is not a face that lies. Abu Bakr was one whose bowl has fallen from the roof. There's no hiding the fragrance that comes from an aesthetic. A polished mirror cannot help reflecting. Muhammad once was talking to a crowd of chieftains, princes with great influence, when a poor blind man interrupted him. Muhammad frowned and said to the man, Let me attend to these visitors. This is a rare chance, whereas you are already my friend. We'll have ample time. Then someone nearby said, The blind man may be worth a hundred kings. Remember that proverb, Human beings are minds? World power means nothing. Only the unsayable, jeweled inner life matters. Muhammad replied, Do not think that I am concerned with being acknowledged by these authorities. If a beetle moves toward rosewater, it proves that the solution is diluted. Beetles love dung, not rose essence. If a coin is eager to be tested by the touchstone, that coin itself may be a touchstone. A thief loves the night. I am day. I reveal essences. A calf thinks God is a cow. A donkey's theology changes when someone new pets it and gives it what it wants. I am not a cow or thistles for camels to browse on. People who insult me are only polishing the mirror. That was the essential roomie. Up next, we're reading from the Catalog of Unabashed Gratitude by author Ross Gay. This is page 72, title chapter, Come On. My mother is not the wings, nor the bird, but the moon. Across the laced hands of the nest, the palm on a fever's dreamer's brow. She was born a crab, waving the twin flags of her pinchers. That's one of her those poetry lies. Truth is, my poor mom's hands bruised on our butts, so that that was the end of that. And when the monk slapped her ass, she didn't kick him down the stairs, but slipped the saffron tail in her pocket. Truth is, my mother's brave as a bison. For years, she dragged her hooves through the ash of her heart, head down, steam rising in ghost from her pelt. Years were nary a blade of glass, nary a birdsong. But one day a small seed took hold, then another. Soon beetles and spiders came back, and then the birds were chatting in the new growth. Act right now, a family of elk crosses a stream 
and behind them on a hillside, a galaxy of wildflowers shimmers, shimmers, and hollers. Come on! That was page 72 of the Catalog of Unabashed Gratitude by Ross Gay. Up next, we're reading David White, Essentials. Page 37, The C-N-U. When I wake under the moon, I do not know who I have become unless I move closer to you, obeying the give and take of the earth as it breathes the slender length of your body, so that in breathing with the tide that breathes in you, and moving with you as you come and go, and following you, half in light and half in dark, I feel the first firm edge of my floating palm, and then trace the pale lights of your shoulder, to the faint moonlit shadow of your smooth cheek, and drawing my finger through the pearl water of your skin, I sense the breath on your lips, touch, and then warm the finest, furthest, most unknown edge of my sense of self. So that I come to you under the moon as if I had swum under the deepest arch of the ocean, to find you living where no one could possibly live, and to feel you breathing where no one could possibly breathe, and I touch your skin as I would touch a pale, whispering spirit of the tides, that my arms try to hold with the wrong kind of strength, and my lips try to speak with the wrong kind of love, and I follow you through the ocean night, listening for your breath, and my helpless calling to you as I should, and I lie next to you in my sleep, as I would, next to the sea, overwhelmed by the rest that arrives in me and by the weight that is taken from me and what, by morning, is left on the shore of my waking joy. That was page 37, The Sea and You, by David White, Essentials. The next piece we're going to be reading is our final piece. And this is from a book called How to Love the World, Poems of Gratitude and Hope. Edited by James Cruz. Okay, page 49. This is a poem by Paula Gordon Lepp, titled Notions. Look at the silver lining, they say, but what if instead I pluck it off and use that tensile strand to bind myself to those things I do not want to lose sight of? Families knit together by evening walks, board games, laughter, the filament fixing us to friends, no matter the distance apart, a braid of gratitude, 
for small kindnesses, a thin gauge wire of loss. Let me twist that lining around my finger. It's a silvery giant of a, or silvery glint of a reminder of just how quickly life can change. I will remember to love more. I will remember to give more. I remember to be still. I will knot the string tightly so it won't slip away, so I won't forget. All right, we're going to do a live action bibliomancy pick just for you guys. Final poem from this book here. Catherine Hunt, The Newborns. All through the night, all through the long, witless hallways of my sleep, from my hospital bed I heard the newborn babies cry, bewildered, between worlds, like new arrivals anywhere, unacquainted with the names of things. That afternoon a kind nurse named Laura had taken me for a stroll to exercise the red line of my wound. We stopped by the nursery window, and a flannel-swathed boy in a clear plastic cradle was pushing to the glass. We peered at him and said, Welcome. You've come to Earth. We laughed and shook our heads. All through the night, all through the drug-spangled rapture of my dreams, I heard the newborn baby sing. First one. Then another, the fierce beginning of their lament, that bright hiss, those soft octaves of wonder. Well, there you have it. A bunch of poems, uh, all from these sweet books, and some of them were kind of spot on. Uh, pretty cool, pretty cool. Uh, especially with the moon and silver linings and the crabs so uh i hope some of those were uh good enough for you guys's high exquisite poetry standards and get ready for some incredible juice some gravy brought by our guest today laird scranton talking about his awesome work on the hidden civilization of scarabray Scara Bray. Until next week, my friends, enjoy, enjoy, enjoy. Don't forget to share this episode with some friends. Don't forget to support RFTA. Thank you so much. Join the Patreon, of course. And without further ado, the interview with Laird Scranton. Welcome to Rising from the Ashes. I'm Danny Nakadan. I'm the homie Romy. Hello, hello. Good morning, sir. 
Hello, hello. Today we are here with the infamous Laird Scranton. How you doing, Laird? I'm doing great. I've been looking forward to this. Thanks for inviting me to come on. Oh, thank you so much. Uh, since it's your first time on the show, can you give uh, people a little bit of background about yourself? How, how did you end up getting into uh, discovering, or not discovering, but uh, wanting to research into Scar Bray? And uh, what is, you know, kind of your other studies and how you got into your profession? Okay. Um, my degree is in English from Vassar College. Um, my profession was working as a uh, custom software designer for businesses on a, a line of IBM machines called the iSeries line. Um, I worked for about 200 different companies. Uh, so my background is in, in symbols and in sort of conceptual mm -hmm. conceptualization of things. Um, in the mid 1990s, my wife uh, had read a book called Unexplained by Jerome Clark, where every chapter in the book is focused on some mystery in the world that hasn't been solved yet. And one of those chapters, she, she recommended the book to me. And one of the chapters was about a modern day African tribe, a primitive tribe that lives way out in the desert, you know, eight hours distant from anything we consider to be civilized. And the African tribe knew some, uh, some things they shouldn't know about astronomy without access to equipment. They knew that the brightest star in the night sky, which is Sirius, is actually um, a star system, that there are at least two stars there, that I would say there may be a third body there. They knew the correct orbital period for the two stars. Um, they knew other details about the system that they reasonably shouldn't know without telescope, at least. I mean, even with a telescope, you can't readily see the second star in that system because it sits in the glare of the first star. So, I uh, started to explore that. I thought, wow, wherever this goes is going to be interesting. Now, the, the official response to that um, reports of that tribe was were um, that clearly this tribe had had um, access to some modern scientists who, who conveyed this knowledge to them and they, they just repeated it. But had had those critics looked just a little bit deeper, they would have realized that the Dogen information is given using ancient Egyptian words that have been around since around 2600 BC. And so the chances of any modern scientist expressing the concepts using those words seems pretty unlikely. Also, that star system knowledge is really um, the tip of the iceberg in terms of what the Dogen represent scientifically. The Dogen say that they're, they, they preserve um, a broad set of symbols, the same archetype symbols and themes and mythic, uh, mythical storylines that Jung identified as archetypes. Um, and the Dogen say that their symbols describe how a tribal god created matter. So, there was a French team of anthropologists, uh, actually Europe, considered to be Europe's top anthropologist back in the 1930s and 40s, who took a team into Dogen country every year for three decades to study the tribe. And he was using cutting edge techniques like film and uh, sound recording and things like that to try to document things from the tribe. And they produced um, 
anthropological studies that I work from. Um, so they've documented the meanings of, uh, among other things, they produced a Dogen dictionary. The Dogen tribe is interesting because their culture preserves elements from at least three major ancient traditions. They have civic practices like ancient Egypt. They have um, rituals like ancient Judaism, and they have a symbolic system like ancient um, Buddhism. But they also have a large amount of overlap with other ancient traditions, Hinduism, Kabbalism. Um, the Dogen language is technically unclassifiable because it includes 18 subgroupings of other words from other languages. You can almost track the history for the migrations of the Dogen tribe themselves based on those languages. You've got Tamil words of the Dravidian languages. Uh, you've got Turkish words. You've got ancient Egyptian words. You've got Hebrew words. You've got words that appear in the Faroese language, which is one of the ancient languages of Orkney. Now, the Dogen say, okay, the more you look at the Dogen system, the more scientifically you, you realize that it is. Uh, some, of, some of it is obvious. They describe um, a structure like an atom that is so correctly described and diagrammed that um, reading Stephen, Hawking, Stephen Hawking's uh, Brief History of Time, <laughs> I could take a Dogen description and a Dogen drawing and separate it for a paragraph and a diagram from Hawking and not change Hawking's book. <laughs> I, can I ask you a question on that really quick, if you don't mind? Yeah, sure. So... Sure. Uh, absolutely fascinating stuff, and the Dogon is it goes incredibly deep, as uh, obviously as your many as your books on the topic describe. Um, but being able to see the the macro and have those explanations for for such a macro with without technology, and then being able to see the micro without the the optic technology, was there any um, through your research? Was there any sort of optic technologies that you found that these people had? Or that they said that they had that they were able to describe these no. macro and micro okay. findings. One of the advantages that I have, I'm, work, I'm working from comparative studies, which means uh, these archetypes Jung said exist everywhere, pretty much in widespread cultures in ancient times. There are elements of these archetypes that appear in many, many different cultures. So, my method is to start with a single element and take a uh, clear description on the part of one of the cultures about what the element represents, and then test that against how all the other cultures who preserved the same mm. element understood it. And find similarities. Now, the Buddhist, yeah, the Buddhist and the Dogen are in agreement that their systems represent an instructed tradition, an ancient instructed tradition. They're not claiming that they develop technology to see this stuff. They're saying that someone who thoroughly understood it in ancient times taught it to them. And so the situation is more akin to if, if uh, you and I had the same math teacher in high school in different eras and met at a party and we suddenly realized, hey, we know all the same little um, uh, word problems and we know all the same little tricks for solving an equation and all these little things, all the same terminology, not because you and I had ever met, but because we have the same teacher. Mm. So what's being described is a civilizing plan for humanity that began to be instructed around 9,000 BC, where the main 
thrust was to try to teach us agriculture. But that civilizing plan was closely tagged to this scientific cosmology. They're trying to describe concepts of creation. And they're using the techniques of agriculture and of daily civic life to reinforce the instruction about the science. And so everything a Dogen does, the way they plow their field, the way they weave their cloth, the way they build their plan and build their villages, these are all symbolic of something that scientifically they were taught. And so when they had Dogen tribes person steps out of their hut, everything they see in their daily life, every animal, every uh, hut structure, every um, village layout is a reminder to them, a reinforcer to them of, of the science they were taught. And so that whole, tends to have a mnemonic value. It works to hold the system together very tightly. This is arguably the same system that um, was used in ancient Egypt. And we know for sure that that survived in similar form for about 3000 years. If you believe that the Dogen came out of that same tradition, then it's held together for at least 5,000 years. Now, my process was sort of to move geographically. I began in Africa with the Dogen, then moved to Egypt and then to, the focus shifted to India and um, Tibet and China, and then to Turkey. And then suddenly there's a jump to um, Orkney Island in Northern Scotland. Now, mm. the, the jump, I, I had no intention <laughs> Why? of moving my, my focus there. Well, I learned, uh, the first, uh, how can I say this? Odd things happen to people who study this stuff. Yeah. I have a list as long as my arm of really, really, really odd things. Some things witnessed, some not. Wow. That come about. Well, one of the things I've learned to do over time is to pay attention to the random question that somebody asked me. Mm. So midway through my process of writing these books, I received an email from someone I didn't know in Australia, and he wanted to know if I knew anything about the Scarabray village. Did I think there could be ancient Egyptian influences on Scarabray? So I took the time to, to at least do some initial research into that. And my first impression was that couldn't be true because the Scarabray village, um, the heyday of the Scarabray village was hundreds of years before the rise of dynastic Egypt. And there's nobody who believes that the Egyptians could have mounted an expedition to, to Northern Scotland you know, prior to dynastic time. But well, seems so still my perspective was- So strange. What's that? It doesn't seem that far out of reach in my mind that a culture in general could travel a few hundred miles and cross water. Right. No, I agree that I agree, but I, no one is is saying that pre-dynastic Egypt had the the, the seafaring capabilities to yeah. do that. So okay. What, okay. What time period is pre-dynastic? Okay. The dynastic period in Egypt starts just after 3000 BC. The Scarabray village, the heyday of it was around 3200 BC, but it probably started by 3600 BC. And there were really interesting things going on at, on Orkney in that era. Um, a group of apparent farmers in their spare time, generationally were building these the first megalithic uh, projects in the United Kingdom. And 
I, okay, the Dogen represent, they use their symbols to represent um, a kind of alphabet of how ma matter forms, um, a series of shapes that represent how matter emerges. In Buddhism, the beginnings of sacred geometry are expressly said to represent how space um, emerges. It replicates, it recapitulates how space emerges. So there, I'm familiar with the sequence of shapes that represents that concept. So when I started looking into situations at Scarabrea, I realized that someone had raised in stone on a human scale, they could walk through, a person could walk through a series of megalithic sites that represented an alphabet of how matter emerges. Um, it, it would be as if you arrived on Orkney and you found a giant carved, a set of giant carved letters, A, B, C, D, K. It wouldn't take a genius to figure out that someone was trying to represent the alphabet in, in stone. Mm. Well, that's essentially what these sites are. And at 3200 mm. BC, there was a Neolithic road that connected all of these sites and led to the Scarberry village. Wow. So the problem on Orkney is that it's not like ancient Egypt. Ancient, ancient Egypt, you can't walk two feet without tripping over a clay pot or a, or a, you know, a stone artifact of some kind. On Orkney, you have a very limited set of evidence to work from. So one of the pieces, okay, the Scarabray villages is traditionally understood as the first farming village in the United Kingdom. It's a cluster of eight chambers or houses that were all originally built to a single plan. And the plan is one that researchers there don't have any precedence for. They can't link it to anything. Um, the house plan includes um, a small round room at one end that they call, call a beehive shaped chamber, the, the modern researchers call it that. But there's a round room at one end, there's a square room in the center, there are two rectangular rooms on the side and rectangular rooms on, on the bottom where the entryway is. And there's a square hearth in the middle of the main room. And all of the original houses were built to that same plan. So the plan had some significance. So uh, sort of out of desperation because I had no other ways to link this stuff with the suggestion that someone had set out this series of uh, megalithic shapes that corresponded to what the Dogen say are how matter forms. I double checked whether the Dogen who uh, build stone houses, they live in the desert and so they mostly build out of mud, but they do occasionally build a stone house and when they build it, they build it to that same plan. They have the same round room, they have a square room in the center, same basic plan down to specific details that when they, the, the house is built by laying flat stones without mortar, it's called drywall construction. Um, and then at the top of the stone walls, they turn the stones upward, which they also do at Scarabray Village. And there are other um, aspects of the clusters of, the, of houses at Scarabray that, that very closely mimic, mimic what the Dogen do with their villages. Wow. So while well, the Dogen tell us, they build to that plan for a reason. They're representing something. What they're representing is the body of a sleeping woman or a goddess. The round room is her head. The square room is her body cavity. 
the hearth in the center of the square room is her heart. The side rooms are her arms. The, the entryway rooms are her sexual parts. That that checks out. And uh, so, the ancient Vedic temples were also kind of structured in the same way to have the 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 sacred architecture be deified and be built in the form of the god body. So when you go in, you have these different areas that hold the archetypal energies of that deity so you can do proper worship and, and proper whatever practice that they, they were doing at that time. It's out of my realm of knowledge, but that seems to check out in ancient Vedic text as well. It also carries forward into the first um, Christian structures. Even on Orkney, the, there's a bishop's house that's built to the same plan. If you go down through the Hebrides, you find structures that are built the same way. Ooh. Down to cathedrals in Europe are built according to the, to the same plan. Mm -hmm. um, okay, so once I had made that linkage and realized that the architecture is a match, the dough, it then became legitimate for me to, to examine everything that I saw in Orkney in terms of Dogen references, at Dogen and Egyptian um, language and uh, symbolism and cosmology. And so when you do that, you discover that place names on Orkney that have no known, no firm etymology in the region make perfect sense when you, when you express them in terms of either the Dogen language or the ancient Egyptian language. Like there's a site called Stenness on um, Orkney, where um, there's reason to think that they were measuring out seasons of the of the year, among other things. The, 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 there's a time aspect to it that's seasonal. Well, in the ancient Egyptian hieroglyphic language, the word sten, S-T-E-N, means to distinguish between summer and winter. Hmm. So you have that kind of intuitive linkage with, with names that, um, that are very old on Orkney. As a matter of fact, it turns out worldwide that if you go back far enough in time, in one way or another, the ancient languages are, the form of their word tells us what the word meant or was intended to mean. Um, in the mm -hmm. Dogen language, you have root concepts represented by syllables and they build more complicated words by combining syllables where those root concepts, when you combine the root concepts, it defines the more complicated concepts. So if I know how a Dogen word is pronounced, I can predict what it means. Now you can carry that to ancient Egypt. The same thing happens with um, the Egyptian hieroglyphs. And I'll give you a simple example. The ancient Egyptian word for the concept of a week the Egyptians uh, observed a 10-day week in ancient times. A lot of cultures did. Their word for week is written with two glyphs. The first glyph is a glyph that represents the concept of a day. It's a circle with a dot in the middle of it, the mm -hmm. sun glyph. Mm -hmm. And the second glyph is the Egyptian number 10. And so lo looking at that word, that two-glyph word, I realized that the glyphs of the word explained its own meaning to me. I didn't know that the Egyptians had a 10-day week until... I explored that word. And then I figured out that every ancient Egyptian word worked that way. As a matter of fact, if you go to ancient China, to their earliest hieroglyphic writing, they had a 10-day week and they formulated the word for week in that same way with a sun glyph that was round with a, a dot in the middle of it and their number 10. 
so we have direct comparability in the hieroglyphic languages of how they were formulated and used and interpreted between ancient China and ancient Egypt. Wow, that's fascinating. One of the one of the things that uh, stuck out to me with Scarabray was the, the the name itself. Like it's almost like Scarab Ray or Scarab Ra. Is that right? Is that a stretch? Um, it it it's a compelling resemblance, but it doesn't really hold up when you look when you look into it. There there's other symbolism that's harder to explain that uh, mm -hmm. about what it represents but uh, um actually there is a perspective from which it holds up that the word scarab could be related the scarab the dung beetle in egypt represents the concept of non-existence coming into existence and the entire mm -hmm. geography mm -hmm. of Orkney is um how can i say predicated on that concept mm -hmm. the con um the Dogen system gets very deep down into the fundamentals of how energy works. And what they're, one of the confusions for me early on was that the ancient Egyptian hieroglyphic language defines two separate glyphs for the concept of time. I thought, why do they need two glyphs for time? Well, it turns out that energetically, we have two modes of time that are being re represented. Just as we have two energies, we have magnetism that has certain attributes and and modes of, inter of acting. And we have electricity that has different attributes and different modes of acting. Turns out that there are functions of time that associate with each of those two energies. One is an oscillation back and forth, that's magnetic. And the other is linear, that's electric. So Orkney Island is set up, all the major structures are set up at Stennis, which sits in view of an island called Hoi, where there are two elephant-like mountains. It looked like two sleeping elephants with a gap in between them. And anyone standing at Stenas can observe the motions of the sun during the year behind the, as it sets behind those mountains. To the extent that at the equinox, the sun sets squarely between the two mountains and then you can watch it move progressively farther north to the winter solstice and then back progressively farther south to the summer solstice. But a second mode of time is being reconciled by that same arrangement. The second mode of time, which is linear, is symbolized by the concept of sunrise to sunset. So on Orkney, you have the sun rising in the east, setting behind those mountains every day. But where it sets behind the mountains reconciles that oscillating offset of the second mode of energy of time. And so you have effectively a, a non-material mode of time and a material mode of time. Now that goes along with um, some fairly heavy scientific concepts. There's a concept called quantum coherence. Quantum coherence is the uh, one of the biologists that I read compares it to the um, a jazz combo where every player in a jazz combo has ultimate latitude to play whatever they want to play. But it has to be in keeping with the theme that the entire combo is playing. And so you have two structures that are being integrated in jazz. You have that individualized mode of, of musicianship, but reconciled with the, the group um, dynamic of musicianship.
And that's what the two modes of time are doing. That we're reconciling a linear mode of time with an, an oscillating broad mode of time. And so it's as if every event that occurs is simultaneously being measured two ways. One way, it's being measured as if all events happen at once. It's an overview. And the other way, and the reason it ha it's, it's as if everything's happening was once, at once is because that mode of time is ultra quick. The second mode of measure is linear, and it's as if every event happens sequentially. Do you think that there's a significance to the structures that they were building, uh, incorporating this knowledge of these different times of how the body moves and how the earth moves, and then how to maybe put that into like an ascension model for them? Was ascension a part of this culture's um, higher importance? And were these architectural pieces a part of that process? Okay, the concept of ascension, which is a little little complicated, uh, is part of the system. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I can, I can eventually get to explain what it represented and why it was important. Um, absolutely, the entire thrust of the of the system is to well, the, the Dogen say there are two purposes in this instructional system, two main goals for for the instruction. The first one was to help humanity understand our actual place in relation to the broader processes of creation, our broader processes of energy. And the second is to foster in us a facility for what they call discriminating knowledge. Now, discriminating knowledge is essentially the ability to draw an inference from a set of facts. Facts are very helpful and very useful, but inferences are a lot more powerful than a set of facts. It's when you can make the conceptual leap because of the facts that you actually have something. And so the entire esoteric tradition is based around, even in even ancient languages based around forcing the person who's working with it to make certain inferences. When you read an Egyptian hieroglyphic word, you have to infer what the vowel sounds are. They didn't write them down. So the idea is to get us practice in arriving at that aha moment about, okay, I'll, I'll give you an example of the power of inference. I, we have two symbolic traditions that are a very close match for each other. The Dogen, which is given essentially in ancient Egyptian words. And we have the Buddhist symbolic tradition that the glyphs that are used to write a word create a symbolic sense the same way that a rebus puzzle does you know a rebus child's rebus puzzle you see a picture of an eye and you substitute the word eye with an egyptian hieroglyphic word you see a picture of a symbol and you substitute the concept and when you string those concepts together, you get a statement of intention on the part of the scribe who wrote the word about what he meant when he wrote the word. And so when you get into concepts that have many different aspects or complicated aspects, 
you end up with multiple versions or multiple spellings of the same word, each one dedicated to a different aspect of that concept. And so once you realize that, you don't have to guess what the words mean. Um, at 500 B BC, Confucius in China loudly complained because he could no longer count on Chinese words to do that. He saw it as a terrible loss to society that you could no longer look at a, a new Chinese word and infer from it what it meant. Yeah, that's so fascinating. Um, what did you say what Scarabray meant? Did I miss that? Actually, okay. Let me give you a little background and then the, the meaning makes sense to you. Um, the point where those two energies come together, where there's a, um, where, okay, we're, we're dealing with a system called Samkhya in India, which is a companion to yoga. Samkhya is the cosmological view of what yoga is a personalized view of, using the same terminology and the same concepts. Um, Samkhya says universes form in pairs, one less material and one more material. We basically have a cycle of energy flowing from one universe to the other, energy and mass. And so it's like, the situation is like an hourglass where you start out with all the sand up in the top hourglass, uh, globe of the hourglass. And over time, it filters down into the lower globe. That's what's happening with energy between these two domains. Okay, now at the midpoint of that energetic continuum between the non-material and the material domain, energy overturns. Mm -hmm. that magnetism holds primary sway in the non-material domain and electricity holds sway in the material domain. And so there's an overturning of energy that happens there at the midpoint of that. And to convey the idea of something turning over, the system uses the image of a capsizing boat. So Orkney, which geographically signifies the the point where those two energies come together that's the the concept of a sanctuary is non-material material energies coming together orkney is a physical representation of that point where the energies meet the point at which the energies overturn and the word scarabray in the faroese language is based on roots actually if you compare it to ancient egyptian words skahar bari means the overthrown boat, the overturned boat. Mm. Uh, the era of Scarabray is around 3600 BC, which is the midpoint of the half 12,000 year half cycle. It's the same uh, approximate era that the Hebrew calendar was begun. That worth 5780 something in the Hebrew cal calendar right now. Um, approximately 6,000 years since it was established. So the era, both the era of Scarabray and the geography of Scarabray place it at the center point of this, this cycle of energy. Um, now, Einstein says that if we increase the mass of a thing, we also slow down its pace of the pace of time that it, it experiences. And they've, they've tested that with using atomic clocks to very refined amounts. They, they've determined that 
in the span of a millimeter difference in rise above the surface of the earth, there's a change in the pace of time that happens, mm. minuscule one. If you increase the mass of a thing, you slow down its time frame. So at the same time that we're scrolling energy and mass between domains, we're also progressively slowing the pace of time. And that's why when astronomers, as they recently have done, announce that they see a mammoth galaxy out there way, way, way in the distance. The Webb telescope has just discovered a mammoth galaxy out there that formed way, way, way too quickly and actually um, came to an end way, way, way too quickly. Hmm. Uh, they see galaxies out there that are a thousand times as bright as they should be based on what theory says that they should be. And from my point of view, that's because the pace of time back then was running a lot quicker. It was less massive. The same amount of time that it took the universe to double in volume, the ratio of mass energy also doubled. There's a one-to-one -one correspondence between the expansion of space and that ratio of energy to mass. Do you think there's a correlation between um, these ancient cultures, this knowledge of time and space, and the importance of our role here on Earth and how to maybe play a part in that that construction of these different galaxies is that is that also another stretch like was this or was this no, just an observation the the how can i say this the the goals were simpler than that i think the intention was that if we understood correctly where we stand in the relation relation to the larger processes of energy that we'd be better equipped to make correct choices for ourselves and for the environments that Beautiful. we live in and so forth. Beautiful. Okay, so um, now the Dogen system rests, oh, I was gonna give you one more proof that time is slowing down. When the uh, astronomers- Seems like it's speeding farther up. And farther, well, yeah, it feels <laughs> like it's speeding up, but the the pace, okay. Uh, first, let me explain to you why it, why it slows down, then I'll, try to give you the proof of that it is okay if you can imagine that you're an objective observer you're standing outside the system and you're able to measure how long it takes what the what the objective duration of a moment is you know exactly how long what that represents and in that moment because the speed of light is a constant you know that light is going to be able to extend a certain distance now imagine that as you're sleeping, somebody came in and doubled the objective length of that moment. Mm -hmm. The consequence mm -hmm. of that is that light would then be able to extend twice as far as it had before in the same moment because the moment lasts twice as long, objectively. Wow. And so, and so by every mode of measure you have to judge by, it would look to you as if space had expanded when it actually hadn't, all that happened was that the pace of time had slowed down. And variably, being the observ uh, the observer, the, what's the word I'm looking for? Not the observatory. Being the observer in that, you would have, yeah, you would have so many profound philosophical moments <laughs> experiencing that, you know, uh, going out, getting your morning cup of coffee, going out to your observatory, looking out and seeing more space and just right. 
constant profoundness. That's, I mean, we hear that all the time with ancient cultures, you know, that, that there, there may have been, um, and I know you wrote the Velikovsky heresy and, and Velikovsky goes into this as well, you know, talking about the, um, the different um, alignments of our galaxy and, and how our planets were aligned and how some of them may have been closer in the atmosphere, how, and, you know, right. maybe possibly two moons, two suns, this kind of thing. So does that kind of play a role into um, what some of these cultures were trying to relay with like petroglyphs and, and uh, architecture and things like that? Yes, uh, to my way of thinking of that, I mean, a lot of petroglyphs are, represent these same symbols in different forms. Now, the ancient Egyptians tried to warn us about this misperception, okay? You know, back in the day, it looked to everybody as if it was perfectly reasonable viewpoint to think that the sun orbited the earth because that's the way it looked. Intuitively, the sun goes around the earth. That's what's happening. Anybody would tell you that's what's happening. But the more subtle view is that it's not. It just appears to be. So this idea that it's the pace of time that's slowing down and it only makes it look to us, make it appear to us as if space is expanding when it really isn't, is something we have no way of getting our arms around. So <laughs> in the Egyptian hieroglyphic language, they have a concept called mat, which is a very treated as a very, um, it's interpreted as a complicated concept that might mean truth, it might mean law, it might mean justice. It's a very co complex concept of that nobody really grasps. Nobody can really express what it represents in ancient Egypt. It was the job of the Pharaoh to uphold mat. But when you look at the glyphs of the word mat, what they say is perception is the foundation of measure. It's a caution to us. It's saying when, when you approach all this stuff thinking you're going to measure it and understand it, you need to understand that how you perceive the thing intimately affects how you measure it. That Okay, now I was going to give you a proof that time had, the pace of time has been slowing down. Scientists look out into the distance in, with their telescopes into the universe, and the further out they go, the quicker a rate of expansion they measure. And so what they've concluded from that is that the pace of expansion of the universe is speeding up, and they're postulating there must be dark energy, some energy we don't know about, that is capable of universally pushing the universe in all directions and expanding it faster and faster and faster and faster. The Dogen system is saying, no, that's completely wrong. What you're seeing is the effect of your own progressively slowing pace of time. It makes it look as if events that happened ultra quickly a long time ago, way, way far out there, makes it look as if things are expanding faster but in fact, all that's happening is your point of view is slowing. It's like riding on a passenger riding on a train on the tracks, and there's a second train on the next track over, and one of the trains changes speed. It might not be immediately apparent to, to the passenger on the first train whether it was his train that changed speed or the other train that changed speeds. And did it, you know, which one slowed up, which slowed down, which one sped up when you're looking at things relatively, there's, it's hard to tell. So there are all sorts of indicators. I've sort of been collecting a list of indicators that, that uphold the idea that 
the pace of time has been progressively slowing down. In fact, in the system of energy that Dogen are talking about, the pace of time is one of the few factors that's actually changing, legitimately changing. The others that seem to be changing. Um, okay, so now the Dogen system is rests on concepts of parallelism and um, and opposite. But when you get down to the root of it, they're, what they're trying to get us to understand is a handful of dynamics of energy that hold true on whatever scale you want to look at it. And they hold a cluster of dynamics of energy that are responsible for the formation of matter are also responsible for the formation of a biological cell and for the uh, formation of consciousness. You have the potential for consciousness built into the dynamics of the energy, just as you have um, an oscillation of time built right into the two energies. So the perspective is that energy, this energy goes through a cycle that uh, the Dogen are comparing to the natural water cycle. When you start studying this stuff, you find all of these, what seem like very apt, quaint uh, metaphors that are being used, the idea of a a sleeping goddess at the surface of the waters who opens her eyes to see the light. A very poetic, apt, intuitive metaphor. The further on with the study you go, you realize that these are not metaphors. They're telling us in plain language what's actually happening. These are objective descriptions of what's actually going on. And so when they describe the energy cycle and compare it to the natural water cycle, that's ultimately not a metaphor. It's, a, it's an objective statement that the dynamics of energy are the dynamics of water all the, way, all the way down to the bottom. And the stages that energy goes through are the very same stages that energy goes through or that water goes through. For example, Hawking energy, which is energy that is uh, leaked out of black holes. The scientists say that it's evaporated from the black hole. That's a, that's a water term, water cycle term. And it creates something called instanton knots, which um, have also been documented to be naturally occurring in bodies of water. These are, um, these instanton knots are sort of a, a pre-materialized energy. They're the equivalent of water vapor in a natural water cycle. Do they hold a special property uh -huh. at all that you know of? Well, yes. Um, Hinduism describes the state of instanton knots as they use the term omkara. It's a, a pre-materialized state of energy that is inherently trifold in nature. And scientists tell us that at the center of the, these instanton knots are um, three monopoles. The Dogen system, um, the materializing Okay, you, you have um, you have have two different halves to this cycle. In the materializing half cycle, things begin as sort of a in a superconductive state where um, magnetism is dormant and electricity is unresisted. And then periodically there are events that can happen either randomly or from the outside that 
um, interrupt the circuit of electrical energy in that superconductive state. And with that interruption, a spark is created. The spark is a monopole of electricity. And that spark evokes two monopoles of magnetism. And now we have three monopoles. But we essentially have the two monopoles of magnetism are the equivalent or a precursor to a proton. And the spark of electricity is the equivalent or, or a precursor to an electron. So essentially we have energy emerging in proton electron pairs. And a proton, electron pair, a proton electron pair is inherently unstable that it will, after a period of time, the electron will separate from the, the proton if it's a, just a standalone pair and move away from it. In most cases, it'll end up orbiting the proton and create a hydrogen atom. Is this a, a trident or the Vajra? Yeah, oh, well, the Vajra uh, is the equivalent of a Dogen symbol called the Kanaga, which is sort of a squared version of the rounded Hindu Vajra. But what that's representing is a, a complicated concept. I'd said there's parallelism in the system, but we're all aware of three linear dimensions. What we're not immediately aware of is three energetic counterparts to those dimensions, that the energy itself expresses itself dimensionally. There's a dimensional separation between electricity and magnetism at root. And the that, material solution uh, One between... of the signatures of that... What's that? And the material solution that kind of bonds them together? Well, that's more complicated, but, but we know because, okay, there's certain signatures to dimensionality. For one thing, uh, the structures emerge geometrically. You go linear dimensionality, you go from a geometric point, which in the traditional view has no dimensionality, to a line which is defined by two points, that's one dimensional, to an area which has four points, which is two dimensional, to a volume that is three dimensional. Well, on the energetic side, you have electricity, which emerges as a point charge. That's a geometric point. You have magnetism that emerges as two monopoles. So that's the equivalent of a geometric line. And you have a precursor state with the instanton knots that is defined by three monopoles. And so on the energetic side, you have a descending series of, of what I call energetic dimensions mm. that interface at the middle with the linear dimensions. And that's what the Vajra represents. And that's what the Kanaga represents. The concept of these two, two sets of uh, dimensionality um, linking together. Do you think there is <clears throat> a possibility, yet again, another stretch? Because I, like I like throwing the cast in the net sometimes. But do you think there's a possibility to- Yeah, that's a great place to start with any, any interpretation, by the way, is with the resemblances. Yes, so yeah. I, I agree. I agree. And I, you do such a beautiful job of that. I mean, your, your work is vast. I mean, you cover, <clears throat> I, I don't see any uh, books specifically on like the Bhagavad Gita or like the ancient Vedics, but you seem to have a pretty good grasp on the, on the Hindu cosmologies. Do you have a book on the, on the Hindu cosmology or are you working on a, uh, uh, one of those? There are books? elements of it that come up, elements of it that come up in various books. I'm, I'm about to publish, self-publish a book called The Waters of Life, where Hindu concepts play a larger role 
and where the perspectives of uh, the go-to guy for Hindu symbolism is uh, Rene Guénon, a Frenchman who wrote uh, in the early 20th century. Okay, so uh, that's, he's, oh, yeah, he's the go-to right. source for my go-to uh, Adrian Snodgrass is my go-to source for Buddhist symbolism, and his go-to source for, for a lot of his symbolism is Guénon. Okay, so that kind of brings me into this, the question that I was originally going to ask here. So the water, obviously, the primordial waters play a huge role in this. And so is there, is there a common theme across our ancient ancestors and these very beautiful, mystic, magical uh, cultures that might have been like inflicting specific energies into water or maybe putting a charge into water to thus have uh, transcendental experiences. So, you know, we know that the ancient Greeks created like the water organ and they were working with, uh, putting harmonies into water to change the structure of the water itself. Uh, and then baths are very important. Do you think that the, the, the qualities of our electrical body and our time body and working with the atmosphere and those different time dimensions and working with the, the dimensional portal of water itself, and then putting these was this was this one of the practices of the ancients? Does that question make any sense there? It does, and I'll try to explain it in terms of what's going to be in the upcoming book nice. I'm about to publish. Um, any body of water is actually a two-state body. They had a very hard time proving it and documenting it detecting it because the transition between the two states is continuous and it's ultra quick so quick that it's very hard to measure but every body of water oscillates between a chaotic state and a coherent state and the dynamics of that oscillation are exactly what the dogan are saying and uh, and uh, in india they're saying are the dynamics between the two universes it's exactly the same oscillation the part into the, the the female deities right and how they always represent chaos and order right that's Ooh. right it's, it's the same symbolism now in any living organism okay uh let's back up a little bit let's go back to that superconductive domain where energy first materializing energy first emerges okay from the dogan perspective what creates superconductivity is the perfect alignment of all the little magnets in the domain. If you align them one way, it's called superconductive. It's where magnetism is dormant and electricity is unresisted. But if you flip all the magnets over, then you create a state called superinsulation where the reverse is true, that magnetism is unresisted and electricity is dormant. Wow. And the continuum of energy that, that oscillates in the universe is a transition from one state to the, one of those states to the other of those states. And all you're really doing is you're playing a Mahjong game where all the tiles are face down and now you're turning them all face up. Now, the reason that happens is because when that little spark of energy is created, when you disrupt the circuit in, of electricity in the superconductive domain and you produce the two magnetic poles, that same impulse of energy causes, okay, the magnets appear on either side of the electrical monopole. But 
that same input of energy causes the magnet to flip. Well, we know that parallel magnetism, when all the poles of the magnets are aligned the same way, pulls together. Anti-parallel magnetism pushes apart. So when this little magnet flips over with the electrical charge in between, now suddenly they're set anti-parallel to the rest of the domain, so they start to get pushed out by anti-parallel magnetism. And as they move, they open up a dimensional space that allows the electrical charge to extend. The Dogen is saying, that's what happened with our sun and the Sirius stars. They say, the two Sirius stars and our sun all emerged together just exactly like that. And that over time, our sun has moved progressively farther and farther and farther away from Sirius stars as a consequence of what is essentially parallel magnetism. And so mm. our sun is orbiting the Sirius stars in exactly the same way that an electron is orbiting a, mag uh, a proton in the hydrogen atom. It's the same dynamic, just played out on a higher scale. Wow. Now, yeah. that anti-parallel magnetism is a very important concept. The effects of what happens if that magnetism is parallel or not is a huge has a huge influence on what happens to energy and to biology, but nobody ever considers it. So the, bio, the biologists I've been reading are saying that just in any living organism, just inside the aqueous membranes, an exclusion zone forms of coherent water, water in its coherent state. And most components are excluded from that zone that's that's microns wide next to the um, next to the aqueous membrane. They're not sure how that exclusion zone forms, but it creates a circumstance that is essentially superconductive. And so what exists inside of any living creature is this secondary conduit for energy, secondary to the nervous system of the of the animal that they've measured impulses getting back to the brain half a second quicker than through the nervous system. It explains why a creature like a hydra can be a living creature when it has no nervous system. Now, the way that exclusion zone forms is clear to me because of the way the Dogen explained the dynamics. There are signatures to certain types of uh, transactions that the signature of materializing energy is an increase in magnetism. The signature of deconstructing energy is residual ions, positive and negative ions. So one of the features of these exclusion zones is the aqueous membrane that it's next to has negative ions on one side of the membrane and positive ions on the other side of the membrane. That says to me, we're talking about a deconstructing process. And the exclusion zones only form with aqueous membranes. They don't form with non-aqueous membranes, which means the water that's in the membrane is critical to the process. So based on the Dogen energetics, what's happening is infrared light, which will penetrate into a the, the tissues of a person 
or a creature is also readily absorbed by a water molecule. And Japanese scientists have done studies that show that under the right circumstances, infrared light at the right frequencies of infrared is not only absorbed by the water molecule, but it also de de deconstructs it. So we have infrared light penetrating the membrane, deconstructing the water molecule. At the time it deconstructs it, it also flips the molecule components, which sets them anti-parallel to the rest of the, the membranes and the rest of the biology of the creature. And now those migrate out to just beyond the edge of the membrane with the, the signature ions on either side of the membrane and the anti-parallel magnetism pushes everything away. Mm. Wow. So it's the same, very same dynamics that are producing matter that are producing this very critical function of biology. The biologists can't understand how the membrane of a cell works. At first they thought cell membranes were impermeable, but then they discovered that there were certain elements that were able to cross the boundary one way or the other. And so they said, well, clearly there are little gateways in the, in the cell membrane that are of a certain size that will allow a molecule of, some, of a certain size to get through, but of a larger size not to. But the problem is now over time, they've discovered there are all sorts of things that pass one way or the other of all sorts of different sizes. They can't conceptualize a gateway structure that would accommodate that. But they're not so considering this is, a, <clears throat> this is a little maybe off topic, but on topic, uh, <clears throat> I kind of think of the world or the universe in uh, the macro and the micro of uh, cellular structure of uh, atoms and whatnot. And, and the solar system represents that same structure. So w with your saying with this primordial water existing in the cell and then um, <clears throat> the split out to the sides, does that mean we exist on the inside of the planet? Rather than um, on the crust outside? There, there are similar uh, energetic effects that happen on the planet, but it's not, not exactly... You actually do have the same effects at the surface of water that you have in those exclusion zones. So yes, if you, if you talk about the surface of ocean water, you're seeing a, a, the same effect that we have biologically in, a, in an organism. Mm. Now with the cell, if instead we imagine what's going on is that certain chemical reactions within the cell cause the molecule to flip, the ones that flip get pushed out of the organism by parallel magnetism. It doesn't, you don't need a membrane to, to accomplish that. They're being pushed out. It doesn't matter the size of the molecule. All that matters is how is it oriented. And the same thing with the, the components that pass through the other direction. If they're oriented the right way magnetically, they get passed through. So would that have to do with uh, density being pa uh, passed through because of the density? And would that mean that we are connected by that silver cord to the, the, the nucleus of the cell? It means that as that they've like discovered gravity. that the membrane of the cell is really not significant, that mm. they've discovered if they pierce the membrane of a cell, that the cell holds its coherency for quite a long period of time, and they don't know why. But mm -hmm. we know that parallel magnetism pulls together. So if, the, if all the magnetism in that cell is aligned the same way, it's going to hold its coherency for a period of time. Do you, and <laughs> I was going to ask about cryogenic freezing. Do you believe that that's a thing? Uh, 
with with the cells like being able to uh to to freeze cells and be able to thaw them out later and have it actually be a working uh working model yeah we know that random sorry they can do it with um a woman's egg they can freeze her eggs and um decades later um we've seen eggs unfrozen and then produce we've seen um frozen dna in the antarctic Mm -hmm. that when it thaws is still perfectly viable dna this seems like when you go to space, you know, you have those those sub-freezing temperatures out there um, and, you know, the preservation of like the, the no oxygen and everything. So it seems like the bacteria could be able to, to float around until it reaches a livable atmosphere to where it would breach and kind of, that was super random. I, I apologize for kind of uh, going off the cuff there. I just thought of, I've always been super no. curious about cryogenic freezing. No, that, that, that's a good point because there are certain bacteria they know can do that. There's certain bacteria that will form clusters that enable them to do that. But you also have certain uh, creatures that can withstand all sorts of trauma mm-hmm. in space and in volcanoes and other other heavy pressure. So, so there, there's it's a lot of water sci-fi uh, kind of topics that bring up this um, really cool concept of like bacteria technology or uh like cellular technology where like the wires are made of like fleshy like substance where electricity is able to flow through as opposed to like um you know like our concept of wires and rubber and uh do do you think that that uh is an <laughs> this is another weird random side tangent but do you think that that is an actual thing that to to be able to to create technology out of out of like bacteria, like conductive material out of like a bacterial for, uh, source? I mean, it, it could be. We know the DNA is an excellent uh, data storage medium, for example. Um, yeah. So I, I don't see why other living tissues might not be, they might, might not find uses for them that apply to electricity or energy or storage of data wow okay Okay. now biologically there's another issue with with organisms one of the big questions biologically is how is it that a cell has instant access to the energetic components it needs for the reactions Mm -hmm. it's going to produce anywhere in the cell on a moment's notice how does it get it yes and they try to come up with all of these complicated transfer methods uh here's how you move an electron uh from component to component, from atom to atom, basically, trying to figure out how that happens. These exclusion zones, though, are superconductive zones. And we know from the, the matter descriptions that Dogen give us that a superconductive zone is like a gigantic reservoir for a proton-electron pair. So wow. that means anywhere in the entire body, because like 70% of the water in an organism is within microns of a, an aqueous membrane. Anywhere in the body, our, the organism has access to a, a, a sort of an endless reservoir of proton-electron pairs that it can produce instantaneously. That is mind-blowing. So we're talking also, about, about the... Oh, go ahead, go ahead. No, uh, go ahead. I was going to say, is there... What were you going to ask? A, uh, m- 
we were talking earlier about magnets and water and, and their, the, the, the different polar differences of superconductor, super insulator, um, and a little bit about baths. Do, is, there, is there a magnetic bath that you've heard of? Because like, we know about shock therapy and, uh, you know, or, or putting electricity or magnets in and around the body can actually have like some heightened experiences, uh, heightened conscious experiences. Uh, have you heard of any sort of magnetic baths that might do the same thing? No, I know, I've heard of researchers who work with magnets to try to produce health effect, but but I haven't studied it very deeply. Um, it makes sense to me that that if uh, it also makes sense to me that infrared light um, potentially has beneficial effects for uh, apparently infrared light is is critical to the repair of injuries and things like that in the human body, that um, there's signals being sent out after an injury that, that, um, that call uh, some of these components to the site to, to try to fix it. But I haven't studied that deeply enough to know how, how it works or to have an opinion about it. Well, your, your grasp on um, physics is, is incredible. I mean, we, we were starting the conversation <laughs> yeah. with history and uh, ancient ancestral <laughs> tribes and, then now we're on a, a deep physics kick, and I love it. I, I absolutely love it. Um, <laughs> the, the physics is very simple. I mean, what, the, there's one message that's trying to be communicated anciently. It's that, folks, this isn't rocket science. Mm -hmm. That this is a matter of looking at the thing the right way. It's not a matter of it being so complicated you can't grasp it. Observation. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that even... even um, um, Michio Keku says that um, below a certain level of measure in the quantum domain, we no longer have the ability to measure accurately. So you're not going to come to the, ac the answers of things through measure, through progressively more refined measure. You're going to arrive at it by conceptualizing what has to be happening and then demonstrating that that's what really happens. And that's what the Dogen want us to do. They want us to, to understand how the dynamic works. It's a very simple dynamic. Once you understand it at any level, you can apply it at all the levels. It's the same, a single set of dynamics of energy and they're pretty straightforward. My book, um, and the Spark of the Universe is where I arrive at what those dynamics are. Um, now we have a static perspective on on what that dynamic of energy actually is also that agrees with what the Dogen and the Egyptians are saying. The symbol that the Dogen or the Egyptians use represents the continuum of energy in the universe is the, the almond-shaped Egyptian mouth glyph. Um, it's very small at one end and larger in the middle. It's uh, an almond shape. It's a Vesca Pisces shape. Mm. Um, I had been, for, for the, the current book I'm about to publish, I had been exploring um, information about a hydrogen, hydrogen atom because I knew that was key to understanding a bunch of this stuff. And I thought that I had I had my arms around all the important material. And then one day a friend messaged me with a picture of a crop circle that had just formed in England. And the crop circle I could see had the contours of a, of a water molecule that was configured like a water molecule, but at the center of the crop, crop circle were three almond shapes that I didn't understand what they represent, represented. And so I did some digging and discovered that 
there's a very subtle but important aspect of any molecule called the resonant states of the molecule. So pursuing that, I discovered that back in the 1920s, a French aristocrat and physicist by the name of Louis de Broglie wrote a highly important paper about the resonant states of a hydrogen atom. He, he used math to determine that the orbital levels of an electron and a hydrogen atom, there are certain levels that the electron can move to depending on the energy state, that the, the places, the resting states where the electrons um, sit correspond mathematically to the resonance points of the energy. This is re a resonance issue. Mm. So he did a bunch of other studies and he measured um, what he calls the cyclical influence of magnetism on a, an electron orbiting a, a hydrogen atom and the cyclical presence of magnetism on the components of the proton of that same atom. And he graphed them. And the graphs, for the electron, the graph is that same almond shaped Vesica Pisces shape. And for the proton, it's the zigzag wave, single wave lift shape of the Egyptian language. So I thought this is way too important to have been ignored by the Egyptian hieroglyphic language. Let's find a word that's written with those two glyphs. And I discovered what it represents is, it represents what uh, Wallace Budge calls the divine name. It represents the hidden aspect of, of uh, creational energy or of deity. Um, there's also another word that's written with the two glyphs that's followed by the image of a kneeling mother holding up her in, newborn infant in front of her and them looking at each other, regarding each other. Mm. Um, symbolically, what it says is perceives the mother. Well, the mother the, the feminine energy is magnetism. And so I took that as sort of a congratulatory message saying, if you understand the significance of these two glyphs of the leading, leading glyphs of the word, you perceive what the concept energetically is of the mother. Yeah. So those energetics on, on a universal scale, what the Dogans and Egyptians are saying happens is, that at all the resonance points, which, which occur in factors of, okay, we have energy that's creating this almond shape, moving from a superconductive state to a super insulating state. And along the way, we're creating resistance and mass that slows down the pace of time. Now, every time, at, at every point where time flows 10 times slower than it did before, we have a resonance point. And you have, so what you have ha happening is the definition of zones, energetic zones within this continuum of energy, 14 of them, that compare to biological zones that naturally emerge in deep seawater. You know, that if you go down into the, the Marianas Trench area, that there are creatures that live on the bottom that depend on a, um, a whole, that prefer a whole, whole different, um, the factors that control whether a creature lives on the bottom or at some other level in this deep sea water are how much sunlight does it like, how much water pressure can it stand, 
um, what temperature of water does it like, and so forth. So Dogen and the Egyptians are saying that we have these 14 zones of energy that naturally differentiate over the continuum of energy. And those correspond to states of consciousness in Hinduism. Hinduism says mm. we have levels of consciousness. And that human consciousness is sort of the tip of the iceberg that sticks above the water, the surface of the water. Um, but that the rest of the iceberg below it, there, there's a whole other aspects of consciousness that we don't we aren't aware of. The idea is it doesn't matter which of these 14 stages of the continuum you're, you sit at. If you look backwards towards the previous domains, three or four levels, it's going to look like waves to you because the pace of time is so quick that you speed up the pace of anything, it looks like waves. Imagine um, headlights on the highway of automobiles at night. If you took a video of that and then speeded it up, it would reach a point where you didn't see individual headlights anymore. You saw uh, streaks of light, saw waves. Yes. This this gets into an, an uh, interesting thing I heard you talk about with uh, the Tuatha de Danan and uh, the the predecessors, I think you said, called the Numo. And what, right. Or Numa. And what right. Numa means. Yeah. Because we well, understand here that the Tuatha de Danan also are the are the group of people that exist in the higher vibration and lower vibration at the same time that's why they have this etheric state so yeah if you could kind of get into that a little bit mm -hmm. okay we have the potential for consciousness built into the relationship between magnetism and electricity time is the natural oscillation between those two energies the speed of light is a ratio between those two energies that it remains constant no matter what the wavelength is but the potential for consciousness is built into that same dynamic. As I said, the idea is consciousness is quantum coherent, that we have the ability to, to examine a thing in overview, or we have the ability to break it down sequentially. We can't do both at the same time. It's quantum coherence. I say consciousness comes about because we have the ability to reconcile a point of view that is overview, which is magnetic, with a point of view that is linear, which is electrical. Now, Hinduism says that at each of those stages along the way, there's a potential for consciousness. So at the quickest speed of light, at speed of time, and the, the most root domain of energy, there's uh, any number of ancient cultures that recognize the existence of a, a primordial consciousness that they don't deify. It's consciousness in the in many of the same ways that we have consciousness. It's all the same stuff. Buddhism says, esoteric Buddhism, Buddhism says, the final state of, of ascension is, or of enlightenment is, understanding that it's all one consciousness. So the Dogen say that that primordial consciousness makes routine attempts to, to keep track of, of what's going on, and to track things and to, to interact with things. That does this, by sending out three, uh, three categories of orbs of energy that the Egyptians call Aku, the Dogen called them Ogo, but they compared to those three monopoles I was talking about that emerge in the superconductive domain, the three categories of orb-like energy that 
are well, the Dogen word for those those orbs. Uh, one of the words for it is Titiani, and traditionally the word Titiani is translated as messengers. But I've said that every Dogen word tells us its own meaning. If you examine that word in terms of its component syllables, it literally means to send to say hello. That occasionally you get a glimpse through a word like that of what the nature is of that primordial intelligence. It's a feminine intelligence. And every little glimpse I've gotten of it betrays it as just the sweetest, most generous personality you can think of. That the idea that these orbs that communicate information back and forth between levels of consciousness are defined as to send to say hello. It's just it, it, it's a, a revelation to me. It's very, very, um, very compelling um, reflection of what the nature of that personality must be. So there was a man named John Burke who um, passed away in recent decades, but um, he did a lot of exploration of ancient stone structures like pyramids and stone cairns and stone circles and so forth, and the effects that those structures have energetically on unplanted seeds of agriculture. That he was able to demonstrate that even to this day in some cultures, farmers will bring containers of their seeds to the top of a pyramid or a mound site or to the interior of a cairn site and leave the seeds there for a period of time. And then Burke documented how much more productive the seed was that had been treated that way as compared to seed that was kept separate. Now, as he did his studies, he was Super doing, seed. taking photographic uh, records of all these sites he was visiting. And in the interior of some of these of these cairns, he, what would turn up on the, the photograph he had taken was a picture of one or more of these orbs. Um, a physicist who was with him explained to him that these orbs of energy exist just below a frequency where we can see them, mm, mm -hmm. but that the flash of the camera added just enough extra energy to the orb to temporarily make it visible and then oh. it fell back. That's so fascinating. Burke actually, Burke actually caught the orbs there. Egyptian words that are the names of these orbs um, are defined as, define the orbs as being responsible for the fertility of plants. Wow. Um, oh, 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 okay. Sorry, sorry. Keep going. I'm sorry. <laughs> so fascinating. And, and the Dogen words for the same orbs, in other words, the, the Egyptian word is aku, a uh, comparable Dogen word is ogo, which is a term for an orb of light. And uh, the Dogen see one class of these orbs of light as being responsible for the fertility of plants. But there's another class of those orbs. Now these are these orbs are are intelligence, little little discrete intelligences. The Dogen are saying that it's one class of these orbs that during the middle of the energetic cycle, we were able to take material form and became the teachers of the Dogen. 
I'll try to explain how that works. Um, the differences in time frame. Okay, if, if we have energy scrolling from one domain to another domain, and not just energy, but also mass. And as the mass increases in one domain, the time frame slows down. As it decreases uh, in the other domain, time frame speeds up. So just like an hourglass, you have a point in the cycle where you have the same amount of sand in the top globe that you have in the bottom globe. The time frames equalize. This compares to the idea of water pressure equalizing. You know, um, scientists who are in a submarine will use an airlock to equalize the air pressure between the inside of the airlock and the outside water so they can move safely between the two. Same thing in space. The implication is that the midpoint in the energetic cycle when the time frames have equalized crossover between the dom our domain and the one immediately next to us becomes possible. And that's what the Dogans say their teachers did at around 3600 BC. Wow. These uh, these lights. The too. word the Dogan word. Go ahead. Uh -huh. Oh, it's just say the the lights too. They they associate to fairy lore, right? Or the the lore of um. <clears throat> yes. The Twatha day. Then on, do do you think there's correlation between that, uh, that that similarity? I think there absolutely is. I mean, the further back you read accounts of fairies the more overt they were. Um, there, I, I have accounts written in the 1600s saying, of course, you know, our grandparents had many more and much easier encounters with these, these energetic fairies than we do now. They had more, more frequent and more um, substantial encounters. That there's also time dilation effects associated with the fairies. Mm -hmm. um, the story of Rip Van Winkle, who um, um, fell asleep, was taken away by the fairies and then brought back and discovered that all of his, um, his friends and relatives were dead. He had been gone for a number of years, but when he came back, it had been decades here. The, that was written by, um, I'm trying to think of, of um, who wrote Griffin Winkle. His father was from Orkney. And Orkney has all sorts of um, history about ancient sites, about um, beings that um, reside inside some of the 400 stone cairn ancient sites that are on the island. That's so many for um, that island. That do you know uh, through your studies? Have you have you found much of like uh, magnetic radiation, or is there a heightened uh, Geiger count on on that island like there must be something very special or what are the geological constituents of the island well um okay if you if you study the geometry of superconductivity it's at precisely the geometry of um a mound site in england with a trench around it really and they've done magnetic studies on orkney uh of the Maze Howe site, which is one of those, and discovered heightened magnetic effects down in the trench. Wow. But it's quite possible to my way of that, that someone was replicating superconductive conditions in the mound 
the way they configured the site. There are other aspects on uh, at Stennis that argue very compellingly that that they were using energy to do very interesting things. That is may have actually created created an exclusion zone for energy um, in the locks around the isthmus where Stennis is. Um, there you have it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I heard you talk about that word pneumo. I wanted to, uh, or pneuma, if you could get into that a little bit, because I think that has a interesting meaning. Right. Which Dogen described think, like they wouldn't. Yeah. Dogen described their right. teachers as that these the word pneumo, but that compares to an Egyptian phrase. It's a compound word pneuma. Pneu means waves. And ma means to perceive. So the very name of the word of their, the name of their teachers is waves perceived, which is what they say um, happened. Uh, not, not an energetic consciousness took material form. Um, the Dogen say that they're, okay, let's back up a little bit. Um, another Egyptian word, nema, okay, the vowel sounds in the Egyptian hieroglyphic language are uncertain because they didn't write them. We have to guess what the vowel sounds were. were. So there's an Egyptian word, nema, that means pygmy. That could reasonably also have been pneumo, not, not nema. But the earliest Scandinavian accounts of Orkney uh, report two groups living side by side on the island at the time, a group of short-statured pygmies of very strange habits and a group of average-sized clerics so different from the Scandinavians as to constitute a different race. Um, John Hedges, who was a long, lifelong Orcadian, he, he was native from Orkney, and he was also an archeologist as a profession and helped um, um, preserve the Tomb of the Eagle site in Isbister in, uh, on Orkney and wrote a book about it. He opens the book by saying, um, people who are familiar with Orkney will may find it hard to accept that Neolithic Orkney more resembled modern Africa than it does Scandinavia. Hmm. That's, that's so, so cool. <laughs> uh, they've done DNA studies on Orkney that 1% of modern Orcadian men have share a Y haplogroup in their DNA with the Egyptians and Zogans. What about uh, China and the people of of, of the East and their okay, genetics? China, the, uh, there is, the Chinese language rests on an earlier hieroglyphic language called the Dangba language, which was developed or, or brought to China by the Naki or Naxi. Um, the Naki are understood to have been Black African to the point that the word na took on the meaning of black in China. Um, the hieroglyph that the Naki used to represent themselves is a stick figure that's blackened in. Wow. Uh, now, in cultures, okay, the Dogen perspective is that there were dangers in being too closely associated with these teachers. Um, they compare to what's described in the Old Testament, the cautions that were given to the Israelites to stay back from 
Moses's mountain because of the bad effects that might accrue to them because of the energetics there. So the Dogans say that their teachers were concerned about the bad effects of their presence on us. And so to limit that, they decided to educate eight tribes people from any given culture at a remote location, which I take to be Orkney, and then send those eight people back to the, where they came from to pass the civilizing skills on to everybody else. That's one of Jung's archetypes, the, the eight quasi-mythical ancestors or emperors or um, mm -hmm. gods or they're represented in various different ways who were the bringers of civilizing skills. Can we, can we talk about that a little bit? Because, you know, uh, there's a huge burst online of a bunch of, uh, a bunch of talk that the ancient cedar races were, you know, big stature, blonde or red hair, blue eyes, and that type of genetic. Um, do you think it varied? Uh, and if so, what are these eight different uh, cedar archetypes? Uh, physically? Well... Yes. Academic researchers I, I study say that they don't know of an ancient culture that doesn't represent that they had help or gifted knowledge from somebody more capable than themselves. Mm -hmm. And the suggestion, there are all sorts of different descriptions in terms of size and, and, and attributes and so forth for these. So just because the instructors of the Dogen and the, Hindu, of the Buddhist tradition that tie to these archetypes um, seems to link to energetic beings that were able to materialize doesn't preclude the idea that there were also visitors from other places that were more traditionally sci-fi alien. Mm -hmm. So, it's a big um, one. I mean, I know a physicist who should know says there are dozens of different alien types that we've interacted with, our government has interacted with, that have been here for yep. millennia. That's a and common Some common of them thing are too, very yeah. friendly and some of them wouldn't want to meet. Yeah. Right. Yeah, we've definitely talked so, to experiences I think on the show quite possibly, shared that as well. So it's quite possible we had many different types and it doesn't boil down to, oh, they were just giants or they were just pygmies or they were just reptilians or they were just whatever. You know, it's kind of crazy to see that, you know, we like modern culture is so <laughs> dichotomous and it's like, we want to be diverse. We need this, but we're also running into like a make everything singular. You know, we want to accept diversity and we want to create and allow this individual individualistic lifestyle for people. But then again, when you really step back and look at it, it's kind of making everything more singular uh, on, a, on a cultural level. When then you start to look back at our ancient ancestors and our ancient history when it was so incredibly diverse. And then even these different types of archetypes that you're explaining here, small, small people, and, and like in the Norse, uh, Norse mythos, right? In the different branches of the Yggdrasil tree, there's all these different creatures that have all these beautiful, amazing qualities about them that make life, all right. of life. And it makes a diverse goodness of everything, the plethoras, the plethoric amount of reality. And so it's just that funny dichotomous uh, uh, style and way that in which we are living in our modern reality. It's, it's the same jazz combo I was talking about, the same quantum coherence. <laughs> the idea of maximum individual freedom to, for each player to play what they want 
or to be the way they are or to express themselves the way they want, but in the context of a harmonious whole. And so to my way of thinking, that's what we're trying to get at. That's the ideal situation is the diversity makes that richer, but it only makes it richer if it's harmonious. Um, yeah, when you're talking about uh, the, the, the pygmies in Scarra Bray, do you know C- Susan B. Martinez? Have you heard of her? Um, I know the name, and I, I, I've seen some some of the work, but I don't know her personally. Yeah, she talks, uh, uh, she talks a lot about how there's little people everywhere, and they were very highly spiritual people, and that um, people, uh, yes. kings and whatnot, used to go to these people for kind of uh, knowledge of what was happening or going on. They're like the little cherubim, basically, (laughs) but they lived all over the place. And it's interesting that Scar Bray has, um, I guess they found at the site, smaller beds or whatnot that these pygmy people lived in and had this area. How is it, do you think it was possible for them? Was it the little people that built Scar Bray or is it somebody else that built Scar Bray? Was it just the information? That built Scar Bray. Like, how how did this structure? How did this uh, get the, built? The, the Dogans say that humanity patterned their furthest uh, living structures after what their teachers did. So there are parallels between the Scar Bray house structures and the stone cairns that exist on Orkney. It it's very believable to me that a group of students being taught civilizing skills and including um, architecture and construction, put up a, a set of, of houses that were patterned after the, the stone cairns. Are you in the wheelhouse of the stone cairns being uh, naturally created or they were uh, uh, cast stones specifically created with like uh, constituents for magnetic properties? Um, or what's your take on on the cairns and, and and how they were built and their function? It depends on the era and the cairn, mm-hmm. because um, this is a complicated subject. <laughs> um, the ancient Egyptians describe um, a kind of gateway between domains um, called an akhet. It's a light gate light shrine. And I see parallels between some of the stone cairns and those um, uh, akets. The earliest form of a Buddhist stupa is an evoked hillside that separated earth and sky, but that has very many of the same attributes as some of the the stone cairns around the world. Energetically, I can see a perspective from which some of them may have been evoked as gateways from another energy domain that. Um, like the orbs you were describing earlier. It's, it's, yeah, it's hard, hard to explain how that happens, but that there are effects of energy that when you're working with the right materials, you're working with chalk or you're working with iron rich uh, clay um in the right context 
that you might be able to evoke a structure like a stone cairn, um, essentially a 3D print structure from the other side of mm. the other side of the barrier of the door. Whoa. As a okay. kind of gateway to process to man to like so to to speak Whoa. through these different uh these conscious communications with the other side and ask them for a cairn to be brought to you as like a communication device of sorts no i would say that it was initiated by the other side okay here's here's what our essential motive and problem is in this this cycle of energy that that happens, um, it compares to a sleep cycle um, at, at various levels. Mm. Um, what's happening on one side is, okay, we're talking about yuga cycle stuff. Um, just a minute. Isaac, wait one minute, one minute. I need to stop here for a second. Okay. You can pause it. Okay. Um, we have sleep cycle stuff going on. Um, okay, at the end, at the least material state on the non-material side, the energetic side, you have a state of consciousness that compares to REM sleep in a sleep cycle. It's a state where um, a perfect consciousness but where the consciousness is not able to take action. Our bodies inhibit action to prevent us from acting out the dream, the things we're dreaming in REM state. Mm. Yeah. The problem is, okay, that comp also compares to a medical condition called locked-in syndrome. There's a famous book and film called The Diving Bell and the Butterfly about a Frenchman who suffered a stroke at the wheel of a car, had a car accident, and was um, taken home as brain dead to be cared for. His, um, there was, as far as they knew, there was no brain activity, and um, his body was still functioning, but he wasn't cognizant as far as they knew. All he could do was blink his eyes, his eyelids. And so after a few months, one of his caretakers realized that he actually was still in there. He was still perfectly conscious in there and that they arranged a system between the two of them for him to blink and indicate one letter at a time. She'd, she'd step through the alphabet and he'd blink at the letter he wanted to indicate. And he ended up writing this whole book eventually one letter at a time with this aid. He was perfectly conscious, he couldn't move it. It's the equivalent of being buried alive. So the nature of the yuga cycle is such that for a period of thousands and thousands of years at the end of the cycle, the less material side is going to be in the equivalent of a locked-in syndrome state. If you don't have a compatriot who knows you're in there, then it is the equivalent of being buried alive. It's completely horrific. So we have a problem here. <laughs> we have a situation where um, about a third of the way into the cycle, the, the universe that is in the non-material state realizes that it's headed toward a locked-in syndrome situation, and it finds itself in desperate need of a compatriot. But at that same extreme of the cycle, the material side of the equation is furthest removed from any 
awareness of the non-material side at all. So just at the point non-materiality needs a, a caretaker, um, the beings on the other side of the equation have no idea that it's there. So they decide to take action. They move to the material side and try to establish a framework for society that will preserve the memory of the fact that non-materiality is there. And they arrange a mode of instruction that sort of filters out, uh, it's almost like a, an interview process. Initiation is like an interview process to filter out those people who are most capable of, of communicating in the mode that non-materiality needs. Wow. Now, it's uh, an ongoing cycle, which means that the side that's more material today, 12,000 years from now, will be the side that's less material. So it's a mutual need. It's a, a mutual motive. It's uh, the covenant between the two, um, the two universes is, look, we're going to each do this for the other as we go along. At a certain point, we're going to step in and make sure that the structures exist so that the non-material side, when it's in this locked-in state, will have a caretaker that it can communicate with. Samkhya says there are routine attempts from non-materiality to induce action or to communicate knowledge to the material side. Uh, vivid dreams, um, clairvoyancy, uh, the unusual behavior of animals, um, shamans who can access uh, non-material things using drugs, um, many different methods of, of communicating. Wow. So that's really the, um, the underlying motive for why would anybody bother to do this? Why would anybody bother to have set up a symbolic system that represents how non-materiality non relates to materiality? Yeah. The void. Uh, we, we've been talking uh, a lot about uh, the Tuatha De Danan on the show. And uh, a few weeks ago, we had Elena Danan on, and we were talking about it. And um, she had mentioned that they would uh, study at a place in Gotland. And then the Tuatha mythology, they seem to have went to a place to learn uh, from four other wizards, or whatever you call them, mystics, um, all these different sacred scientists. Uh, sacred sciences, and they would have to stay there before they could go out. And uh, it seems like maybe Scarabray was one of these like colleges or institutes of training people, uh, as well as um, Gobleki Tepe and other other places. Is is that kind of your um, yes conclusion? Also, um, one of my books. A recent book called Tracing Orkney's Origins. Um, researchers on Orkney have a problem. They, they don't know where the first farmers who arrived on Orkney came from. And they every time they try to trace it, they come up with equivocal answers as to where they might have come from. But I realize that the mistake they're making is they'll take one artifact at a time. They'll take a breed of sheep that's very ancient that still exists on Orkney, and they'll say, okay, well. That we know this was domesticated, uh, first domesticated before 6000 BC in the Near East. But it might have arrived on Orkney through any number of different paths. It might have come across Europe in the north or the south of Europe, or might have 
uh, come by sea and might have migrated over a long period of time. They don't know how it got there. The same is true of every other artifact they have. They can sometimes pinpoint an origin way, way back. They don't know how it arrived on Orkney. I took a different approach. I said, I know that the Orkney culture seems to preserve this ancient esoteric tradition, which involves clusters of elements of many different sorts. There are agricultural elements, there are linguistic elements, there are architectural elements, there are cultural elements like burial traditions and pottery styles. Um, there are myths. Um, so starting with the Gopekli Tepe era, which is in the is south of Turkey, southeastern Turkey around 9,000 BC, we see, first see these clusters of elements. It turns out the clusters move hand by hand, hand in hand with each other um, across the Mediterranean, one island at a time, one major island at a time. Researchers in the Mediterranean, uh, many of them believe that there was a deliberate attempt to colonize the major islands for agriculture. And so these coherent sets of elements were arriving on the islands as a recognizable set. And then um, agriculture being at, at least attempted, in some cases it was, it was successful, in some cases it wasn't, major island to major island. Um, from there, it became clear to me that the tradition moved out Gibraltar and up the coast of Europe through the Hebrides to Orkney by around 3600 BC. You arrive on Orkney the, with a set of elements, original founding elements on Orkney at around 3600 BC, where every aspect of that culture is seen in similar form on Malta in the immediately preceding years. That's why you have the sleeping goddess shape of the architecture of the houses at Scarabray, the sleeping goddess is famously, um, was famously discovered on Malta. What it looks to me is as if a group of students who were originally from Crete were educated on Malta and then chose after they were initiated rather than going back to Crete to move on to Orkney. And, um, we can see that the evidence of that in um, the Faroese language, which I've talked about, one of the ancient languages on, on Orkney. Um, on Malta, there's a megalithic site that overlooks an elephant island that the sun sets behind. Uh, the megalithic site is called Hagar Quim. And in the ancient language at the time, the word name Hagar Quim meant standing stones. You go to Orkney within 100 years later, you have the standing stones of Stennis, and you have an ancient name for Orkney that was Orknajar. In the Faroese language, um, Orca means to endure or to stand, and Kajarni means stones. So Orknajar, which they don't have etymology for, they don't know what it meant, reasonably in the Faroese language means standing stones. It's homage to Hagar Quim. You've got um, a bay next to the Scarabury village called um, um, the Bay of Scale. Uh, you have a similar bay uh, near um, Crete 
called the Bay of Krona. It's uh, the bay is shaped in a certain way that represents the crown of a Near Eastern goddess that was tossed up into the heavens to create the, the constellation. Um, um, I'm trying to think of um, Polaris. Yeah, but that right. No, it's not Polaris. It's uh, it represents a crown. It, it might be Borealis. Um, same oh, shape. Aurora Borealis. Right. Um, so in the Faroese language, you actually have two words for crown. One is Scali, like the Bay of Scale, and the other is Krona, which is the the um, Cretan word for crown. Um, there are naming conventions for the tribes that come out of this tradition. I was talking about the Naki or the Naksi in Tibet. The word Naksi means uh, the the Xi is um, a bastardization of an Egyptian word Sakai that means to celebrate. The Dogon word is Sigi. Naksi means celebrates Na, it celebrates the mother goddess. Um, the original Hebrew tribe, the Yahuda, Yahuda means praises Yah. Um, Skael means celebrates El. El is a Near Eastern god who was a counterpart, he was a god of space, counterpart to the to Yah as the god of light in the Canaanite tradition. And the crown that was tossed up into heaven was um, was El's consort or wife, um, Ashtera. So you have uh, numbers of commonalities like that that point to the idea that someone who was very, very familiar with Crete, but also um, educated in the Maltese tradition was responsible for founding Orkney. Uh, you have um, remains of a, um, uh, I'm trying to what's called, uh, remember what's called, a very large bull um, that was only domesticated, only known to have been domesticated in two localities in the, in the, um, in the ancient world. One was uh, the Near East and one was uh, along the northern coast of the Mediterranean. Um, it's called an aurochs. They found that at uh, the Nessa Brodgar on Orkney. Um, it's not believable that a group of sedate farmers on Orkney brought a wild aurochs into their midst. That would literally be bringing a bull into a china shop. It would have created havoc. And the aurochs was like the had the power, equivalent power to the be, the best John Deere tractor, you know, today. It was the the top of the line agricultural implement to have. So somebody deliberately brought an aurochs, a, a domesticated aurochs by sea to Orkney, just as it's clear they brought domesticated red deer to Orkney by sea. Someone had major seafaring skills. The aurochs had to have come from the area of the Mediterranean. The red deer likely came from the area of the Mediterranean. Many, many other elements that um, clearly came from the Mediterranean. It's the same um, establishing set of elements, of agricultural elements that you see all along the Mediterranean. You also see it down in the UK. Um, at 2600 BC at uh, Durrington Walls next to Stonehenge, you have signatures of the Orkney tradition. You have someone built a, a stone house at Durrington Walls that is a precise match for one of the houses of the Scarabray village down to where the furnishing, stone furnishings were placed. 
the dimensions and the layout of the structure and so on. The first stone placements at Stonehenge were a match dimensionally and number-wise, um, diameter-wise and so forth for, for the Ring of Brodgar on Orkney from in the same era. Clearly, someone with stone, megalithic stoneworking skills was brought from Orkney to Durrington Walls and to Stonehenge to spearhead that construction. Uh, they found both styles of pottery from, from Orkney at Durrington Walls. They found uh, inscribed stones that are a match for some inscriptions found at the Scarbray village. Um, so it looks to me that that you're, you're, the question was about whether there are areas of instruction. The two major areas yeah. of instruction that I see are at Quebec to Tepe at 9,000 BC and on Orkney at around 30, starting at around 3,600 BC. But there are other spots that have signatures of the same instruction. At 4,000 BC, it was going on at Elephantine um, in the south of Egypt. One of the signatures is in the early years, they would situate their um, instructional site in view of a single elephant-shaped mountain that they could watch the sun move behind and watch it progress back and forth during the seasons of the year. It created a, a natural agricultural calendar. Um, I've found uh, postings that are modern day postings by people who live in Elephantine saying, well, summer must be coming soon because I can see that the sun is, is setting further and further south behind uh, that mountain. At Hagar Quim on Malta, you have an island called Filfla that the sun sets behind the same way. There are caves inside of Filfla where they found the skeletons of um, uh, pygmy elephants. So there are elephant associations with the mountain also. Um, on Orkney is the first time we find double mountains with a gap in between. And that pattern was repeated any number of places. At Abydos, at, by around 2900 BC, someone established um, a cemetery for the earliest pharaohs on or in Egypt in view of two elephant-like mountains with a gap in between it. It's called Pega the Gap. And according to Om Seti, the name Abdu, which is where Abydos comes from, meant the desired mountain. Someone chose the site because of the mountains. And they, uh, the burial chambers, the earliest burial chambers there took the same form as the Dogen house and the Scarberry houses. Um, in Egypt, it's understood that burial chambers are meant to represent houses. So there's lots of homage. Uh, 1500 years wow. later, when Akhenaten reestablished his capital south, uh, further south, he picked a spot that was in view of the sun rising between in a, uh, behind two mountains with a gap like the one at Abydos. He was trying to reestablish mm. the religion. On Orkney, there's a standing stone called a watchstone that's a match for um, a foundation altar the Dogen place when they establish their village. It's like a, a courtyard clock because a standing obelisk, a standing stone that serves as an obelisk, is a, a sundial. You can tell the, the time by it, but it's also a good marker for as a gathering place for people. But on Orkney, it was the spot from which you could do, do the best observation of the um, solar effects behind um, the mountains of Hoi. Um, Akhenaten placed a pillar that was a similar watch point for his mountain. 
<laughs> do you do you know what the uh like the breakdown of the word institute is? No, I don't. I uh, do. Do you have insight into what where that came from? No, no, I don't. But it's like instant oot is oot <laughs> uh uh meaning of anything. I would uh, certainly look it up. The the most productive. <laughs> The most productive uh, way to deal with linguistics is to try to get back to the original term, because it's the original term. If it goes far enough back, that tells us something. And mm -hmm. then after that, anything can happen to the words depending on what what group migrated in or what group uh, you know things happen to language. So, mm -hmm. one of my complaints with my publisher is that they want to standardize terms. They don't like that the Dogen call it one thing and the Chinese call it another and the Egyptians call it another. They don't like that there are 15 different transliterations for the same term. But I try to explain to them, the, there is very critical information potentially in these words that mm. we don't want to cleanse that by, by standardizing all the terms to one term that might not be the right term. We want to pass every variant term on to whoever reads the book because someone down the line is going to realize where the connection is. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Uh, etymology is really fun because there's the English, the modern English language that we have now that's becoming a very singular, you know, cross-correlated language across the entire world. Um, has these very interesting esoteric uh, attachments to them and archetypes to the each letter. Um, so you have like, you have like this like kind of strange esoteric mystical way of looking at etymology in the modern English language that the people that created it were very tapped into ancestral knowledge and some higher esoteric echelons. But when you... <laughs> It's fun to do that, but sometimes you'll make some stretches where you're like, all right, bud, like you might want to calm down with that, that etymological stretch. Because when you do break down, like when I was saying earlier, like scarab, raw, like, of course, right? You, right. Got, you got the scarab and you got raw, the, the sun god, but then you look it up into the actual um, Northwestern European languages. And, you know, I, I read that, that Bray meant hillside or mountain. And, you know, so they, they have... You got you got to go to the source, like you're saying, absolutely. But it is fun right. to speculate, and I think it is important yeah, it to do is. That from time to time. Yeah, it is because those those resemblances very often tie are, are the beginning of an important interpretation. But understanding that some of them are just resemblances, and I mean there are only about forty phonetic values represented in any language, mm -hmm. and so there's a high possibility of coincidence yeah. that two meanings are going to be expressed using the same phonetic. So anytime that you have a resemblance as a starting point, then the trick is to find a way to anchor it. Mm -hmm. You need to be able to find a way to demonstrate that somebody in ancient times saw it that way. Yeah. And then you then you have something to work with. Absolutely. Yeah, Absolutely. The only one who sees it that way is me. I don't have anything. <laughs> well, so one thing <laughs> I wanted to bring up too, I know we're, we're going on uh, two hours here, so maybe we'll start winding down with some, some final questions. This has been such a fascinating chat. Um, it's going to be a lot to relish in. Everyone's going to be supremely <laughs> stoked. And we'd even love to have you back to go even deeper on all the other things. But um, one of the things that came up during this chat that I thought was interesting was Orca Islands, do you, uh, which are 
right on top of some tectonic activity in the Washington state, in the, um, the Strait right. of Juan de Fuca, you have the Orca Islands. It's not Orkney, um, but then right. I, did, I did do some quick Googling, and there are some, some stone structures on the Orca Islands as well. I was wondering if you had found any uh, correlation into that or um, if there's any cross, yeah, crossover. Well, there could be because we know we have ancient um, settlements uh, that go up through the uh, through British Columbia and such things. So we have groups that were in that area, and we have direct uh, direct signatures that connect back to my tradition. For example, um, in the Native American tradition, a Navajo roundhouse is the same structure and symbolism as a, a Siberian yurt, one form of Siberian yurt. Another form of Siberian yurt is a much simplified form. It, it uh, is structurally and symbolically the same as a Native American teepee, and it's actually called a teepee. So we know that the same tradition that played out um, in Siberia, which is my tradition, has positive links coming down that coast. Uh, so I wouldn't be surprised if we found in the or, or uh, under the seawater uh, evidence of stuff like that. Oh yeah, and and the mounds, the mound building cultures. Uh, you know, you have mounds all across Northwest Europe as well, and then uh, archaeo. Um, observatories there's another proper term for that but but yeah super beautiful super beautiful dan were you about to say something sir i didn't mean to cut you off there no i was just gonna say yeah america too has lots of mounds all over the place um do, do you see a significance to these these mounds of what do you think they were used for uh um modern day says that there were like burial tombs and whatnot, but we know from Egypt that the pyramids weren't necessarily burial tombs. So what constitutes uh, the mounds as the same, I guess? Um, from an everyday practical level, I'm with John Burke, that the mound structures were a, uh, it was worth the effort to build a mound structure to have the ability to, to enhance the fertility and productivity of your uh, agricultural seeds. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. That's a motive I can see that's worth building a mound. But at the same time, there were also cosmological reasons to have it. There's instructional value. If we're trying to talk about um, energy at the level of superconductivity, the mound is an excellent tool for explaining how that works. Um, also, it looks as if, okay, the fairy tradition we we're talking about, environment. we're tracking a tradition where we can see over time, it gets more and more and more difficult to interface with the fairy cultures. Mm -hmm. That they become, you know, it's an era in time where if you come back to the same spot a year later, you can find the same effect. There are time, time differences going on. The time, time span is extending and the interface between the two domains is weakening. So, um, it could very well be that some of these structures were there as a way to try to sort of hold open the energetics, to foster the right energetics, to hold open a, an energetic gateway that kept the connection between the two, the two domains. Um, I can see that as a possibility. Um, I was talking about 14 domains of energy. The Great Pyramid, some researchers say the Great Pyramid has the, the capability of, of 
reproducing um, the, all of the frequencies of those domains of electromagnetism. Wow. So wow. there might easily have been a, trying to connect back or communicate back to these other levels of consciousness um, going on. And that over time, it became progressively a harder task to accomplish because of the shifting energies. Yeah. And so the structures they needed to do that got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. So there's also you know, an indicator that that some of the structures may have been at least assisted from the energetic side is, okay, you know, when we're dealing with the quantum domain, there's something called the Planck length, which is the smallest length we're able to measure because of our relationship to how, to how tiny that domain is. And from my perspective, the slowness of our time frame compared to the quickness of the time frame of the quantum domain, there's a minimum unit that's the smallest that we're capable of measuring. Now, if we're imagining somebody from an energetic side trying to influence things that happened here, depending on the time differential, there may have been a smallest unit they could measure. And that might explain why in early times you have you know, 700 ton blocks used to build things. And as time goes, goes, went on, the blocks got smaller and smaller and smaller to the point where they were small enough for us to be the ones building the structure and not, not somebody more capable than us. So scale, just scale down. <laughs> so something right. else I, we were talking about, I mean, we talk about it kind of commonly and it's, it's fun to talk to different authors and researchers about one will have like a common question to a bunch of different, amazing, smart, beautiful people like yourself. Um, and so when it comes to the talk of weather manipulation of ancient times, there is a lot of talk that some of these ziggurats and um, temples could have the effect on the environment to induce some sort of weather manipulation. Um, and I know the term weather manipulation kind of gives people a big, huge, broad conspiratorial mindset, but you know, it's, it, it can be a very simple and a lot of my understanding, but at the same time, tying it to elementals and deities that have different elemental qualities. So last night we experienced severe thunder and lightning, like I was saying earlier. And, you know, we know that gods are and deities are associated with these different types of elements. So I'm wondering if you've ever come across that um, purposeful fire on a huge scale, purposeful rain creation, or the creation of specific storms in order to enact and talk with those deities. I've come across the, the reverse of that. This is John Burke's oh. work again, because the energetics at the top of a pyramid are greatly enhanced from what they are at the base of the pyramid. And the structure of a pyramid is designed to focus energy to the top. So if you're using energy to enhance seeds, that the, the more, uh, the critical factor is separation of, of charges. We're talking about the positive and negative charges across the, the membrane in an, or, an organism. These structures are also characterized by separation of positive and negative charges. Inside the cairns, you have you know, one set of charges rising up and the other set of charges descending mm -hmm. and the seeds were put in between. Okay, the more you can enhance that, the more of a fertility effect you get, a benefit you get. So placing a pyramid or a mound at a site 
that is already has natural energetics, like a, a disconnected energy in the ground or whatever, or building it high enough so that it's likely to be impacted by an incoming storm, likely mm -hmm. to be hit by an electric strike or so forth. Those are all bonuses to the, the fertilizing effect of the Aku. Uh, John Burke saw these little orbs as a byproduct of the structure. Wow. The Dogen and Egyptian treat, see it the other way around. They're saying we're creating an atmosphere that's conducive to the Aku orbs to come in to fertilize the seeds. It's the Aku who are doing it. Attracting. And we're just making it possible for them. To. Yes. Oh, man. Beautiful. If Beautiful. you go to um, very, very damp caves in certain situations, I've seen videos where a group of people taking simultaneous videos on different cell phones would record the motions of orbs, intelligent motions of orbs around them uh, mm -hmm. coming into a, a very damp open cave, that kind of thing. Beautiful, yeah, like the, the and, and people will say, you know, when you go to a more humid climate, you have this, like, you feel like you're just in, encapsulated in like spiritual energy, like it, there's a there's a breath of God there. And then you go to the desert and it's another type of spiritual energy, which is another type of elemental intact. And it's, it's so fascinating. Red lime, limestone. Oh, red limestone. The Dogen uh, situated themselves along an escarpment. that's all red limestone or sandstone. I'm sorry. Red wow. sandstone, Just like uh, yeah, at Sedona and places like that. Um, also, we have been talking about pygmies being associated with these groups. They are worldwide pygmies. They're associated in the role of the teacher or the, or of the, the more divine quote unquote being. Um, the Dogen are situated in a site where a group of pygmies are thought to have previously lived or might've lived contemporaries, contemporaneously with the Dogen originally called the Telem. But the Dogen name for the Telem means we found them. <laughs> Tell them. <laughs> modern interpreters, modern interpreters say take that to mean we found them here when we arrived. I interpret it to mean there were reports they were here. We came here looking for them and we found them. So go ahead and tell them. Wow. Yes. <laughs> That's <was> beautiful. <laughs> but uh, yes, at, at all the oracle sites and stuff in the Aegean, you mm -hmm. have pygmy reports in Egypt. You have the pyg pygmies depicted in glyphs and in statues and so forth. Native American type tribes are very commonly associated with pygmies. Um, you have yeah. them you know, with the, the Picts and the um, the Petty in uh, Scotland. Kind of gets into like how the fairy mythology kind of formed into what it is now. They're little little fairies, you know. Right. Now, where is before they were substantial substantial height or medium height or small stature didn't matter but now it's kind of depicted as in the short form so that's kind of interesting um i looked up the etymology of ooth and uh it came back as uh several different things it came back as origin it came back as feminine and it came back of of as wealth and prosperity so instant wealth, instant prosperity, or instant origin. Um, it's kind of fascinating when you think about instant origin or instant wealth. 
uh, that knowledge of going to an institute and that higher learning. Right. Uh, it's pretty interesting. Uh, one other point I wanted to make about Abydos for for millennia at Abydos, they would celebrate an annual um, Osiris festival that included different aspects to it. But one of those things was sort of a, um, um, a sea uh, chase game um, that was centered around the dismemberment of Osiris's body. Um, all of the same traditional aspects of that game are still observed in Kirkwall on Orkney every Christmas time. They have a, something called a Ba game that is carried out uh, where a ball represents the head of, of a mythical mm -hmm. figure that's being competed over. There are similar games that, are, that were preserved well into recorded history times on Crete um, in uh, feminine cultures played very much the same way with a lot of the same details of how it played out. Um, and the Orcadians don't even know that they're observing an Osiris festival, but it's all the same mm -hmm. stuff. Yeah, mm -hmm. the specific words and names of characters and things like that. Wow. Yeah, and then you got the ball game in South America as well. Um, right. That's right. You know, that that's... Yeah. It's yeah, the Aztec ball game. I forget the name of it. Uh, some of their words are so incredibly complex. <laughs> trying to say, it. I just found, you know, like just saying Quetzalcoatl is, uh, you know, so it's enough for me. But one of my final questions for you is going to be very simple, and okay. I'm excited to see what you say. Dragons. Dragons. What are dragons? Okay. Symbolically serpents and dragons represent energy. I had talked about the cyclical presence of magnetism for components of a proton that takes the shape of a serpent. This is scrolling energy. It's a concept of energy that scrolls between domains. So any symbolism that involves uh, an undulating serpent form, my immediate uh, impulses to say that it was representative of energy, and I would explore the the words or the name, the original names for whatever the the dragon was, to pinpoint what they were trying to talk about. In China, they're talking about energy, um, with using dragons as a symbol. Um, the symbolism through the instruction was try was um, catered. It was how can I say, tailored to the environment that the students came from. Because the idea was your environment was supposed to reinforce the learning. So in India, you have a cobra. In Native America, you have a rattlesnake. Same symbol used to represent the same thing, but with an active attempt to try to make sure that it's tailored to the situation you're going to be living mm -hmm. in. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So that dragons are the same way. I see them as a tailored form of that serpent symbol. Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much, Laird, for being on the show today. We appreciate your time. It's uh, been very mind blowing. Uh, lots of uh, cool physics and philosophical insight into the origins of our humanity. Uh, just from one, one, one like, hey, what's Scar Bray? 
took us on this large, large <laughs> journey across <laughs> across all the galaxies. If there's certain uh, topics you find yourself wanting to d drill down into, I'd be happy to come back and talk more focused on certain things. Yeah, we would love to have you back on. Um, Thank tell you. the people where they can find you at uh, your books and um, what else you have going on. Okay, there's an author page for me at simonandschuster.com and at innertraditions.com. And um, there's an author page for me on Amazon. The Amazon's an easy place to find the books. There's a used book site called adall.com where you can usually find a used copy at a, at a lower price uh, if, if, if the cost is a problem. The Egyptian hieroglyphs don't lend themselves very well to Kindle editions, so there aren't a lot of um, e-reader versions of the books I've written. Um, right now, I'm a, about I'm in the final editing phase of a book called *The Waters of Life*, where uh, the discussion is on the energetics of and how they relate to biology. Um, that'll be out in the next month or so, probably. Um, I have a couple of other projects I'm working on. One of the things I've always wanted to do is to trace how I know that a certain symbol represents a certain things um, in terms of Egyptian glyphs. How do you know that this symbol represents this thing? A guidebook on symbolism, Egyptian symbolism? That's fascinating, well, great idea. Yeah, actually symbols in derived format. The goal is, to never use a glyph to explain the meaning of another glyph that I haven't already defined. So I'm working from the earliest givens to um, the most complicated concept working forward. Here's, here's how we know it. Here's the reference in the Egyptian hieroglyphic dictionaries. Here's the comparative Dogen reference. This is why this symbol means this thing. And then that way, when somebody poses the question to me, I can copy and paste sections of, of the document and give them a precise statement of this is, this is the rationale I have for why this symbol means this thing. That'll be a great project. I'm excited for that to come out. <laughs> you have? Do you do any uh, conferences or uh, cruises or anything like that? Um, I have been doing a couple of conferences a year um, prior to COVID. Since COVID, there really haven't been any. Mm -hmm. I actually ran a conference on a day of instruction at Vassar College one year. Um, and I have considered possibly doing that again at some point um, with the ease of, you know, Zoom, face-to-face -face Zoom type meetings. Yeah. Uh, fewer people are willing to travel to go to a conference. I know it's that, it's such a dichotomous feeling because you want to go and have this really cool singular experience, but you can get a bigger audience if you promote it online. So it's that kind of tug and pull, like, what do we do? You know, it's like a band trying to choose whether or not both. they go on tour, you know? You do both. <laughs> right. You do both, yes, absolutely. Because people like us, we, we do want to go. We do want to go. Um, and actually, you know, I do prefer that. I actually prefer instead of Zoom conferences where it's just like little bubbles on the screen, where it's like, it's a, it's a really well-recorded uh, and well, well produced version of like megalithomania or whatever when they have you know they're talking and you see the audience, it's still more a better feeling too. So, this plus you get the benefit stuff. the benefit of the knowledge of every all the attendees because everybody brings something mm -hmm. interesting to the to the conference. You know, 
I'll, I'll, yes. you know, I've been invited to be speakers at certain conferences where, where the organizer will say, well, of course we can arrange so that you don't have to actually see anybody face to face. And I think that's the prize for me. You know, I, I lose 90% yeah. of my benefit if I can't see the people, people meet the people face to face. Energy exchange I too. Yeah, the expression. Um, you know, the the idea mm -hmm. of the auditorium itself was kind of um, built with energetic uh, architectural design. And so when you have like everybody, you know, focusing energy in one direction, it's actually kind of magnifying the stage and it's magnifying giving them. That's why you get this really nervous feeling. If you've ever done any stage stuff, like the first time you get on stage, you'll get a lot of stage fright that's because you're literally getting projected a bunch of energy at you but if you can if you you know breathe and you you do good you can harness that and actually a float through and get more power from the beautiful love that's being shared cohesively through everybody right it's fascinating so, thank you for, due, due, due to conferences less so since covid yeah we'll bring it back it'll happen it's gonna be great i'm looking forward to that water book the glyph book You've got so many books that, um, yeah, it's just, uh, it's, it's awesome. Great to have you on and uh, stoked to chat again. Well, thank you very much. Um, I'd be happy to join you guys again some other time. Cheers. Excellent. Thank you, Laird. Yep. Thanks, Firetrive, for listening. And if you're not down with that, wake, wake up.